Welcome to the podcast that's <laughs> dedicated to making you a faster cyclist, the Ask a Cycling Coach podcast presented by Trainer Road. I am your host, uh, Coach Jonathan Lee, with our co-host here, <laughs> mixing it up today, and our head coach, Chad Zimmerman. Hi, everybody. And we don't have our CEO, Nate Pearson, with us. We have instead Pete Morris. How you doing, Pete? How's it going, guys? Going well, man. Going great. Uh, so what we are going to do right now is we are going to answer some of the cycling and triathlon-related questions you've submitted at trainerroad.com slash podcast. Uh, we'll go into Adam's question first. Uh, so he says, I just finished Leadville and had the misfortune of getting four tacks just after St. Kevin's sealant didn't close the three front front, uh, holes. So I used three plugs I had one piece of bacon already threaded, but it took me time to thread the other two, the rear tire sealed, but periodically shot out sealant throughout the ride. It was rideable, but soft. So I found someone at the sugar loaf turnoff with a floor pump to pump up the tire. I saved my CO2 for if either tire failed and I needed to use the one tube I was carrying. I also had one park tool boot that I didn't use. And for those that don't know what a boot is, we can probably describe that. Uh, Pete, do you want to? Yeah, it's, well, depends on which, what kind you get, but usually it's like a hard plasticky piece that, um, backs up against your tire wall or somewhere. And, uh, you can, it backs up and keeps, keeps the tube from popping out of any holes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, which but, makes sense. They look like for, an adhesive patch. Yeah, for um, big, big problems. And it's really thick. Mm -hmm. It's not just a small little guy. Yep. Um, so yeah, yeah. It's like you said, for big problems. He says I was about the. He says I was about 140th before the mishap, and around 600 people passed me by the time I was back under 15 minutes later. That's a lot of counting. <laughs> <laughs> One, two, three. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he says um, 15 minutes or so. I spent the entire day chasing and managed to just squeeze in for the big belt buckle at 8:56:34. So his question is. Yeah. Very good. Right. His question is what should I have done? So managing a flat in a race. And first of all, tons of people get flats at Leadville every year because of tax, because people protest the race and they throw tax out. Um, they're like basically like thumb tax, if you think of it that way. Mm -hmm. And that's what they are. Uh, just a little How bigger. How many get thrown out on course? Who knows? I've, this man's very good at counting. So perhaps yeah, he yeah, could, yeah. but, um, no, I, I, I don't know a lot. A lot. And, Basically, if you're early on, then you have a great chance of getting a lot of them. If you go basically on, once you climb up St. Kevin's mm -hmm. and you start going on that descent, if you take different lines that what people normally do, then you're going to find more tax mm -hmm. because gotcha. other people haven't swept them up. Yeah. If that makes sense. Um, so <clears throat> that's where we, that's how that kind of works there. So, uh, okay. Talking about flats. First of all, Chad, you brought up a good point. Like people invest a lot into Leadville. Uh -huh. And these things can happen. They're totally out of your control. Mm -hmm. It makes sense to have a backup plan. <laughs> it does. And a lot of the things that we recommend to kind of guard you from this, uh, this experience or make it any more prolonged than need be mm -hmm. are kind of expensive little fixes, but yep. at the same time, consider the investment to the, got you all the way to Leadville, not just the training side, but just the expenses side. So yep. why not spend just a little more and cover the space? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Uh, like he mentioned that he had plugs and I see a lot of people that say like, <clears throat> I have a saddlebag with plugs in there. And to me, that doesn't make any sense. Like, I don't know why you would keep your plugs anywhere, but right at hand, yeah. right? Yeah, like taped on your Qu top draw. tube or something. Yeah, mm -hmm. onto a cable. I've seen people tape mm -hmm. uh, like a, you can get the Genuine Innovations little, it looks like a tiny little screwdriver, mm -hmm. but it has like the open end and people tape them onto their cables, onto their handlebars. I tape it onto the stem and I even have like a way that I tape it so that I have two of them and they're underneath side by side and I wrap one entirely in, in electrical tape. Hmm. 
So around the handle, and then I wrap that around the handlebar. And then I wrap Mm. another one entirely and around the handlebar. And I actually take the tape and I leave an excess little fold. I fold it over on itself. So I have a tab. So then I can just rip that tape off. And when I rip it off, I have the tire plug and I can just instantly go for it. A 20 second fix instead of a... Yeah, because air is rushing out, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of the time, if you can just plug it really quickly, you may not even need to throw in a CO2, mm-hmm. uh, which is a huge help. Yeah. Uh, sidewall slash is much less likely, but this sort of thing, especially like tacks poking to the top of the tire, sure. pretty good. You know, that's that's not a big deal. Pretty straightforward. Um, there's also the Dynaplug Air, which is what I had, uh, but <clears throat> it <throat> fell off somewhere on course. <laughs> so someone else might have it now. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, not ex- it's not cheap. It's like $80. Yeah, and that's what I was talking about. They're yeah. pricey, but man, those things work. Yeah, if you think about that, that's like a CO2 nozzle. It's an $80 CO2 nozzle. That's really expensive. Um, but the, what it does is it just threads onto the end of the CO2, and then it has this needle that has like a tire plug in the in the end of it. And what you basically do is you push that into the hole, and there's a CO2 that threads into this whole thing. You push it into the hole, and then when you pull it out, it actually inflates the tire through yeah. the puncture. Mm-hmm. Uh, it starts to inflate it there, and then when you pull it completely out, it's magic. You know, we should link to their site because awesome. the little demo videos really convincing. super helpful. Yeah. yeah. So producer Tucker will, will toss that into forum.trainerroad.com. If you go there and search for episode two seventeen, you'll find that there. And the other thing too is uh, for races, it totally makes sense to use Stan's race sealant. It's more expensive. It also dries out pretty quickly and it will clog up your valve cores very quickly, but race specific race day. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. it works so well. Like I had it in my tires at there at Leadville and I had three tacks in my front tire. Mm. All three of them came out and it sealed them perfectly. I didn't need to worry about any sort of plugs. Mm. Um, it's a pretty strong endorsement. Yeah. And it's also worth saying that you should refresh your sealant, right? Like, yeah, I, I always think about that's part of the things of lubing your chain, check your sealant, like mm-hmm. do all the normal stuff. And that's where I think those dime plug airs, like <clears throat> if you're already spending thousands of dollars for a race, you have, mm-hmm. you have a thousands of dollars of bike, <clears throat> Yeah, man, just, yeah, it's worth it. Yeah. Just uh, how, how a little more check your sealant. I mean, short of pulling the tire off and looking in there, I think pull it off and look in there. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if it it's, if it's a big race, right. Yeah. It's worth oh, it. Sure. Yeah. You know, and you'll see a lot of people, what they'll do. So sealant dries over time. Right. And it also mm. degrades over time, uh, in the sense that it isn't as effective. Uh, and I, I don't know if that's because at some point I'll, I'll ask the folks at stands, um, but I don't know if that's just because over time, what happens is you get small punctures or, you know, you might burp the tire a bit, that sort of a thing. And then the latex or the actual, like, like the grit inside of the sealant ends up finding its way to those punctures. Then you just get to a point where you have just liquid left with not a whole lot of grit, mm-hmm. or if it just dries out over time, whatever it is, but yeah, it does start to, to, to come apart. And something that I've seen a lot of people do is they buy those little stands refills and pour more in and they just pour more <laughs> in. And the thing is it dries out over time. So yeah, then when it dries out, it loses a lot of its weight. So I know people are like, but then you're just adding more weight, more weight, like double the weight, but it loses its weight when it dries out. Um, and it doesn't weigh anything. And you've felt this when you have the little stand animals Mm -hmm. from back in the day, like the 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 little furry ball of stands. Yeah. It was like some sort of alien little crustacean (laughs) creature that would be left in your tires. (laughs) Those things weighed nothing. Right. Um, and that was like all of the sealant that you put in. So, uh, it's not a bad idea to, if you have, or, you know, if it's been, if it's been a month or two, or I would say if it's been a month, just pull your tire off and check to see, and put your fingers in the sealant to see if it's gritty steel still, and has the normal sealant feel. If it just feels like liquid, then you should probably dump it out, put some new stuff Mm -hmm. in. Um, but if it's been a few months and you, and when you move it around, you hear no sloshing, just take the valve core out. 
put one of those refill guys in there mm-hmm. and just refill it really quick. Mm-hmm. It's not a bad thing to do. Um, it can really help. So <clears throat> on the roadside too, I think that it's so important to carry boots. Like, mm-hmm. cause usually when you get a, a flat that sealant won't seal on the road, it's a big slash. And even mm-hmm. a tire plug is going to have a really hard time filling yeah. it. I feel like boots are the, and the tricky part about a boot is you basically have to bring a boot and a tube because once you've booted it, you have to clean off that tire. So mm-hmm. the boot sticks mm-hmm. and you stick it to the inside. <clears throat> yeah. That's so, one where you have to have a tube. Yeah, you do. And a lot of, <clears throat> I know almost everybody knows this, but wrappers work great in mm-hmm. places of boots. Like, so if you have any dollars. food wrapper, yeah. Dollar. Uh, yeah. Not all of us have dollars in our wallets, <laughs> <Yes>. Chad. <laughs> uh, <a dollar. laughs> sure. The best is when you only have a 20 and you're like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like cliff bar wrappers, yeah. like you just take it and just plop it right mm-hmm. in there. Uh, it's also a good way to not throw your cliff bar wrapper on the ground. Yeah. Keep it around. <laughs> Live it lives in your tire forever. <laughs> exactly right. Exactly right. So I'm uh, moving on to Michael's question. He says, first off, I love the podcast. It's super great to hear from such knowledgeable people. And it really comes across that you want to help people reach their athletic goals. So thanks for the quality content and five stars. Thank you. You're welcome. That's genuinely the goal. Uh, I'm glad it's being communicated. So message received. Cool. And when he says five stars, you can leave those on YouTube or on, forgive me, on iTunes or anywhere else that you listen to this podcast. And we really genuinely do appreciate it. I think that we're still far ahead of, of Lance Armstrong's podcast, which is saying something. So that guy puts out an entertaining podcast. It does little victories. Yeah, indeed. Yeah. We'll take what we can get. It says my question is about recommendations for balance between riding outside and riding on a trainer. I live in Toronto and there are only so many months we can ride with the cold weather of winter. So when it's rideable outside, I tend to prioritize group riding outside. I know the trainer road workouts can be done outside with the outside workouts, uh, mm-hmm. which is pretty awesome. We'll talk all about that, uh, obviously coming through this, but he says, but with traffic lights, uh, traffic and lights in a major city, it's not really realistic to do that here. Although more enjoyable outside, I do find that I make a lot more progress when I spend time on the trainer. So my question to you guys is how do you strike the balance between the two riding inside and riding outside? Thanks again for all the great work, Michael. Yeah, I guess uh, regardless, and th- sorry to not directly answer the question right off the bat, but regardless of inside or outside, I feel like we do have to establish that structure is the key, right? You need to, you got to have structured training. Uh, yeah. It's the main thing. Yeah. First and foremost, it doesn't matter where you do it inside or outside. And mm-hmm. it's, you know, as we'll, we'll go on to say, it's a lot easier to maintain that structure when you're indoors yep. and riding by yourself. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, Pete, how do you balance this? Um, we always say that uh, <clears throat> I, I start with picking cherry picking the like most important work out of the week and making sure I just do that one inside, right? Mm-hmm. Like start, start at the bottom of the pyramid and the biggest, most beneficial thing I can do is probably like a <clears throat> 60 to 90 minute, like very specific workout for what I'm trying to do and mm-hmm. just always knock that one out inside. Then I feel like I've, I've kind of started, um, the week off on the right foot. Usually I do it early in the week because it's when you feel good, sure. yep. knock out the big workout. And then I'm like, all right, I'm, I've set myself up for success. And then usually I can tack on another indoor workout. And then a lot of the workouts like here on Saturdays, you kind of know what you're going to get on our outdoor ride, right? Mm-hmm. Like yep. you always say that it's, it's, you know, exactly what you're getting into mm-hmm. when you're out, when you roll up on Saturday morning. Yeah. Yeah. We have a group ride that's very predictable, same course every time. Yeah. And in most cases for us, in terms of how we race it, it would, it's basically the same way every mm-hmm. week. It's really tough, really hard, a lot of hard efforts, that sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. So you can kind of figure that out. But I, it's like to recap on that, basically you have, you prioritize the highest quality work or the mm-hmm. work that's most precise or what you need at that time. And you make sure regardless of context, if, if it's, you know, whether, whether 
everything else. Mm-hmm. You just make sure that you do that inside because you're trying to optimize for quality. Yep. Right. Yep. Yeah. I think for me, there are a couple of ways that I weigh this. So uh, obviously this year we've done a lot of outside workouts because yeah, we we've been a testing of, a lot, lot of testing. stuff <laughs> <laughs> since we launched outside workouts. Uh, yeah. it's pretty awesome to be able to push your trainer road workouts to your Garmin head unit or watch. And we're working on Wahoo right now, which is exciting stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just automatically happens. It's pretty amazing uh, to be able to have that. So we've done a ton of outside riding and I've found that there are like certain workouts that I really like to do inside. So assuming that the weather even allows you to ride outside, assuming that traffic, that sort of stuff, like, mm-hmm. you know, allows you to do that. Mm-hmm. There are certain things that I really like to do outside when I'm able to, yeah. um, like for example, and, and uh, usually a pro tip on this, we, we have a, this criterium course, as you can see in the race analysis videos that we post is pretty close to our office and it is pan flat and you don't ever have to stop pedaling or slow down. Mm-hmm. And it's, you can basically just continue the same pace. Mm-hmm. And in that situation, the reason that I like riding outside with that is just basically for heat. Um, so mm-hmm. in, in this, in the scenario that, Hey, it's riding outside and it's dealing with the heat that I'll have. Yeah. And sure. I could probably ride inside and just turn my fan off too. So then that I'd probably still be getting a better workout. Um, but that's one reason why I might do a workout outside as I get nearer to my goal event. Uh, mm-hmm. cause I'm trying to, you know, get more adapted to those sort of and conditions. Bike specific too, right? Mm-hmm. Like you, I, I know you were doing some outdoor workouts on your mountain bike on the road. Yep, exactly. I, I, so I ride the rollers usually, and I don't like hooking my mountain bike, uh, uh, up to, uh, or uh, putting it on the rollers just cause it's so insanely loud. Mm-hmm. Um, so I use my road bike on the rollers and I love it. But since I was getting closer and closer, I just basically would sit there and I had a spot to train in my office or I could get on the mountain bike and I could do the same workout. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to do it on that just because in my mind, I want to make sure that I'm checking every little sure. box, mm-hmm. you know, for yeah. specificity. Uh, so that, that's one thing to do for sure. Um, the other side of things too, is I really like doing, uh, even outside in some cases, I like doing those really quick on off sort mm-hmm. of workouts outside. I, I didn't think that they would be good, but then in our testing, I found that if I had a consistent stretch of road mm-hmm. or I had a mm-hmm. steep climb, something like that, it was really <clears throat> easy to do it. And the cool part about the steep climb thing is a lot of the times you just don't have to shift quite as much too. Mm-hmm. If you're not using erg mode, if you're using erg mode, everything's perfect. You never have mm-hmm. to worry. Um, but honestly, if I could take a very fair look at my training, step back and look at everything that I did this year. I guarantee you, if I did all of my workouts inside, I would have had better fitness. Yeah. I I would have been faster. Yeah. It's almost assured. It's just hard to argue it, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, the quality you get. Yeah. And I I mean, you talk about the short, short workouts and that you can do them outside pretty well. And surprisingly you can, Mm -hmm. I I do like to reserve those for indoors largely because they're more engaging Mm -hmm. to sit on a trainer for an hour. If I, I I basically I'm splitting my time, excuse me right now, right now between two different ride formats, either the 30 15s or some form of short, short, maybe 40 twenties, um, 30 tens, whatever. Chad's always testing stuff. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm also trying to regain some fitness Um, and then reading rides and the reading Uh rides are really cool because they're basically butter burners, but yeah. sitting on a, sitting on a trainer for an hour can, can be kind of mindless without, without a lot of structure. Without, yeah. yeah. And mm-hmm. yeah. And without a lot of intensity either, mm-hmm. we're talking like 50, 60, maybe 70% of, of FTP. So I read during these mm-hmm. and it's actually proving to be, uh, it's helping me retain a heck of a lot. Cause I mean, mm-hmm. the blood flows up, which means brain perfusion and cerebral blood flows probably up as well. So there's gotta be a link there. But the fact is 
I'm using this time to kind of perform double duty. I mean, I'd either be sitting at my desk doing this in the morning anyway, or I can hop on the bike, squash, you know, 600 calories worth of uh, basically nothing, keep the blood flowing. I I don't derive any fatigue from it. And if I am really cooked from a workout, then I shave it down to like a 50% jobber and and things go just as well. And I can read Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's just a, it's a form of multitasking that really works for me. And it, it kind of covers two really important bases. You know, Mm -hmm. I'm learning and I'm spending time on the bike. That's a really good point. And you don't get that when you ride outside. You have to be paying attention to no, what you're doing. No, you can't, <laughs> yeah. can't read on no. that. <laughs> yeah. That's like, and also on the entertainment side of things too, mm-hmm. it's pretty cool to be able to have like the, the indoor training portion taken care of. Like that's like your workouts taken care of so you can bring whatever entertainment you want, mm-hmm. whether it's movies or whether it's, and I know you've mentioned that before Chad, using it as like motivation to be like, I can watch this I show when I can train. When. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I have to be on the bike to be able to watch mine, Hunter, right now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, so that can be super helpful. The one thing I did want to say uh, is that if you have a situation where you're stuck in a city, that sort of a thing, mm-hmm. yeah, it's it's really different. It, it kind of, uh, it seems like a totally different circumstance. But in the end, <clears throat> if your goal is structure and getting faster, then I don't think that it's too complex. It really makes it simple. Like uh, there are certain workouts where you, you know, structure may not be as important. If you're just, you know, riding 50 and yeah. 50% for an hour, that sort of a thing, you might be able to go outside and just easy spin that sort of a thing. Mm-hmm. And you might get more psychologically out of that, whatever it is, or you might get more when you're able to read and study, do whatever mm-hmm. you need. But the fact is inside or outside structure is the key. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think definitely in those big cities, there's pockets that are really, that really lend themselves to riding, whether it's loops like us. I mean, not the Reno's a city, but when I lived in Denver, there was some stretches of roads that I could definitely do workouts on. Mm-hmm. And you don't get to ride outside in the same sense where you're just out for a nice big ride, but mm-hmm. you do get to knock out what you're supposed to do in, in a specific region doing a specific thing. And your workout is almost as successful as it would have been inside, which yeah. is... Yeah. You know, the tricky thing now, he mentioned the fact, you know, adding in like the longer workouts, that sort of a thing, like on the weekends, not all group rides are created equal, you know? (laughs) So a lot of the time, like people will say like, yeah, I just toss in that, that weekend ride, but we don't think a whole lot about the structure of the weekend ride. Mm -hmm. And unless it's like a known quantity, uh, it's pretty tough to be able to, Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to like work that in and abs, you know, anticipate how it's going to affect the rest of your training too. You can get caught up in a too slow ride when you Mm -hmm. need to be work, doing some work. And then you're that guy who's pushing the pace and no, no one's happy with it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No one likes or it. you end up riding by yourself, <laughs> yeah. which kind of defeats the purpose of a group ride. Um, and then you can get out there with a too fast group too, depending on what you need that day. It's really easy to do. And our drop ride is a good example of that. If you don't yeah. have good fitness coming into that, it's going to be a really hard day for you. Yes. That or you're going to skip turn or skip laps, which actually that course affords the luxury. Yeah. I'm mm-hmm. doing that very thing, which makes it, uh, again, it's, it's a really known quantity. We know what we can get out mm-hmm. of that ride. We know what to expect from it, but a lot of group rides can be, you know, pretty. Yeah. There's a sweet spot, right? You don't want something that's too fast. You don't want something that's too slow. You uh-huh. want something that's going to agree with your training that you're trying to do anyways. Yeah, exactly. Right? It's got to mesh with what, what your goals are. Mm-hmm. Otherwise you're just you know, kind of shooting from the hip and hoping that it, <laughs> that it works out. See what happens. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Never a great approach to training is <laughs> shooting not so from much. the hip and hoping. I mean, occasionally, sure. But yeah, yeah, exactly. Not on a consistent basis. Uh, speaking of, I guess, uh, using trainer road, that sort of a thing on the product side of things, since you're with us, Pete, um, oh, yeah, we could do some sweet product announcements. Yeah. Yeah. We have some updates for people. <laughs> see some sweet ones. I yeah. Uh, so let's see. Uh, this week, we just released um, Windows 10 Bluetooth to production on mm-hmm. desktop apps. So um, if you have a Windows machine with the capable hardware, um, you don't need a Blue Giga dongle anymore or any sort of amazing, any sort of Bluetooth things. Uh, uh, it's pretty rad. It seems to work 
pretty flawlessly. Fingers crossed. <laughs> um, yeah. Knocking on wood. No, it, it's it's awesome. And so for a lot of you that only used mobile um, and didn't have the kind of hardware to do the do desktop training, now you should be able to nice. on Windows machines. Pretty sweet. Um, and if you're a beta user, you might have just noticed our calendar doesn't look quite the same mm-hmm. on our desktop apps. Uh, used to be a list of workouts, and now it looks a lot more like a calendar. Um, so if you want to check that out, um, get the beta app. Um, I think it's trainerroad.com slash beta. I don't, yeah, I'm not sure that's it, but you can go to forum.trainerroad.com and search for beta. Yeah. And that's the best spot. That's, that's a great one. Um, yeah. yeah, take a look. Uh, it'll look a lot more like the website. Mm-hmm. So pretty sweet. Think. Yeah. Calendars being merged in. Calendars being merged in. That's exciting stuff. I did forget to cover one thing. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, with the 3015s, uh, I made a note on the workout I just did. I'm, I'm starting to make my rides public again because I'm, I'm ready for the criticism. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I'm ready to be actually held accountable. <laughs> But uh, I, I noted that my comment specifically was average power is next to meaningless over durations this short, intervals this dense. And uh, someone asked for clarification on that. And all I want to get get over is that if you do, say, a 30-second effort and you spend the f- first 15 seconds at 50 watts and the last 15 seconds at 350 watts, you're going to get a 200-watt average power, right. which does not tell you what you did over the course of that 30 seconds. So all I'm saying is I don't want people to get so hung up on average power that they think they missed the point of the workout, when if they look at the interval and they see a lot of their time was spent really close to that 350 that they were actually targeting, mm-hmm. you're getting the physiological stimulus that we're looking for. You're getting the high time at a high aerobic uptake. You're getting particular muscle stress, you're getting muscle fiber cycling in and out. You're getting lactate levels that build, but then get to get to um, uh, decline again when you hit that short break and then they build up again. You get a heart rate that gradually rises over the course of this really densely packed set. Yeah. You're getting all those things. Don't get too hung up on the average power when you look at each of these short micro intervals and think, man, I didn't hit one of those. You're still getting the, the, the intended stimulus. Yeah. The uptake, right, is always there. Oh, yeah. And it just climbs, climbs, mm-hmm. climbs from, from interval to interval within the set and then from set to set. I mean, I just watched my heart rate trend mm-hmm. over the course of it and you can see how it's actually getting harder and harder and harder to hang in there. It's like my favorite workout. Yeah. If I could just I do them, them all the time, I totally would. That's, that's <laughs> all I'm doing right now. Easy rides and short shorts. Uh, just so you know, Chad, it's 557 days till Cape Epic. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, that's good information. Okay. <laughs> so something interesting on that. Uh, this is some, we see a lot of people <clears throat> reaching for their average power to hit the prescribed target power for an interval, right? That's missing the and, point of it too. Yeah, and, and I think that then it's a common misconception. Mm-hmm. Really, the the point is every second of your interval, you should just try to be as close as you can to your target. And that's it exactly. I mean, I, I described an extreme: fifteen mm-hmm. seconds, fifteen seconds super low, fifteen seconds on target. Um, that that's not typically how it works. It takes you a couple seconds to settle in, then you settle in, and maybe past the interval, you keep it up for a, a couple mm-hmm. seconds longer. So even what the interval captures isn't telling you the whole story. Yep. There might have been a little work past the interval. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we can't get these things perfectly right. And, 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 and when we don't, I don't want people to misinterpret that. Yeah. And this applies to super long intervals and super short intervals. Every second, you should just try to be close to your target power rather than, for example, if you start out and you're low, and this happens a ton with outside riding, like <coughs> let's say that you start out and um, you get hit with a stoplight or yeah, a you, know, you have to wait yeah. for something like that, yeah. then your power drops mm-hmm. and you're like, I've got a 15 minute interval and I need to be at 210 watts. 
And Slap right now, my average is what 170. <laughs> yeah. So what I'm going to do is ride at 300 for a while until it gets to 210, yeah. and then I'll settle in. That's not the goal. No, and this kind of goes back to the 90% that I often refer to. If you can if you can be close to your target power 90% of the interval, then you're you're as good as you need to be. You're going to get yeah. just every bit of the intended mm-hmm. outcome uh, of yes. those of the training stimulus out of those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's more, that's what the real takeaway is. It's more important to adhere to the 90, per, 90% of the time to be at your target power than to make your average power for the interval yes. yep. correct. Because there yeah. are many ways to get your average power to read a certain number. You mm-hmm. could do it yeah. through frequent mm-hmm. fluctuations, one big fluctuation or steady state. Mm-hmm. Let that be what it is. Mm-hmm. Instead, just focus on trying to match it. That's why on the, the trainer road app, why we don't show your average power, that sort of a thing. We actually just visualize it with the dot mm-hmm. because that very reason we want you to be focused on making sure that you match your power second by second rather than just trying to drag an average around exactly so um yeah i think people get almost hung up on trying to be perfect and and we know perfect is the enemy of the good right but but in this case they try to achieve perfect through routes that are just completely off base yeah yeah it's the and just the the nature of numbers it's easy to throw us off with it right so yeah and remember uh specific things happen when you ride at specific intensities so, and that's what yeah, we're going for. That's it. Uh, Chris says, hello, coaches, Chad, Jonathan, and he says Nate. Uh, so I'm sure Nate appreciates <laughs> yeah. that, but also Pete. Uh, he says, I first have to say five stars all around. I look forward to each live podcast and enjoy previous episodes almost daily while working. He mentioned live. You can join us live on YouTube and there are folks doing that right now. And we'll actually answer the questions that you're submitting uh, all throughout this podcast. We'll answer them after we go through the questions we've prepared here. So it's really fun if you can join us live. You will have to endure seeing us, but you'll also have a good time. So <laughs> yeah, you don't have to look at yeah. yeah, exactly right. It's cool to connect with the other folks that are also watching live mm-hmm. and, and the community around the podcast. It's a lot of fun. So he says, I also wanted to extend a quick congratulations to Chad on his engagement. Yes, congratulations, oh, Chad. Excellent. And to Jonathan for Everesting. <laughs> Wait, you Everested? <laughs> yeah, believe it or not. Yeah, you, yeah. Are you sure? Yeah, really? Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> that's the uh, best joke in the world. It's, it's great. <laughs> never die. Yep, yeah, that's surprising longevity on that one. So he says, into my question, I've only been a Trainer Road subscriber for about three months and after a few failed attempts, to start Sweet Spot Base 1 mid-volume 1. Uh, so I'm going to describe Sweet Spot Base for people that don't use Trainer Road and don't understand really quick. <clears throat> we break a whole season of training into three consecutive phases, base, build, and specialty. Uh, within the base phase of training, you can pick from, if you're a triathlete, we have specific base plans for the different distance you're doing. If you are a cyclist, then we have traditional base or Sweet Spot Base. And Sweet Spot Base has two consecutive halves. So that's a lot of information, but when I'm reading this, it'll all makes sense. Now, every one of our training plans has a low, mid or high volume as well. So those are the factors that he's talking about when I say these plans, hopefully that all makes sense. So in your normal base phase, you would do sweet spot base one and then sweet spot base two and check you'd have the base phase done and you'd pick whatever volume fits the amount of stress you can carry or, and the time you have. So Okay. He says, after a few failed attempts to start sweet spot base one, mid volume one, I restarted the base phase with sweet spot base, low volume one, which I supplemented with one long four ish hour ride on the weekend. That's a super common approach. And honestly, we probably recommend that to most people. When you start out, start Mm -hmm. with a low volume plan. Mm -hmm. This will give you the structure you need. You can still add in additional rides if you want with endurance work. That's that's about the best icing on that kick. It's Mm -hmm. way better to add workouts to your 
your week rather than skip workouts of your mid volume plan. Yes. Mm -hmm. Always. And to nail your plan with, with perfect execution, Mm -hmm. a low volume plan, I feel like you're going to get better results in many cases than if you do a mid volume plan with inconsistency. Mm -hmm. And if you're coming from an unstructured background, any structure is going to yield improvement. Oh yeah. Yeah. So start low volume. It's crazy. I kind of long for those days again, when I first like, (laughs) like, you know what I mean? Like the 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 gains are so rapid (laughs) when you start adding in structure. It's pretty, yeah, exactly. Uh, So he says, uh, this approach has been going very well and it's strange how I dreaded six to eight minute intervals before, but now I can confidently get confidently get through 15 minute intervals. That's a huge point of like, Mm -hmm. uh, I feel like a lot of people, like I hated steady state work. Mm -hmm. Turns out I just didn't do it. So that's why I hated it. Because it sucked. And that's the gist of Sweet Spot Base. That's largely what we're after right there is improving that muscle endurance. Yep. Something that kills you for six to eight minutes is now doable for 15 to 20. And it's amazingly empowering. Like once you can do that. Oh, you get into a- Your work capacity goes through the roof. I remember I was afraid of a breakaway when I was, uh, when I like first started cycling, I was like, Oh, that means I have to do like steady state work. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, yeah. I don't want that to happen. Oh, yes. and, and then, you know, later on, once I got to the point, even just, it's honestly been in the last few years since we started working for the time trial goal and mm. everything else, then it started to change. And now I love steady state work it's uh, so much easier as well as high <laughs> intensity. Yeah. It's amazing. Right. So he says, uh, my question is where to go from here. And I know the normal response would be just go to sweet spot based low volume too, but he has a curveball for us. He says, I'll be traveling for business right when I should be starting sweet spot base, uh, the second half of sweet spot base, and it will be living out of a hotel and without any way to measure power for about a month. However, I have road bike rentals arranged for 90% of the trip and I will have a lot of free time. So I was thinking of following the traditional base plan and using trainer roads, new outdoor rides feature. And he says, in this case, he would just do it with RPE, uh, which is that's, if you don't have power, you just, it's a little Mm -hmm. toggle switch. You just use RPE instead. And it's Mm -hmm. awesome. Uh, So then you can get the targets for that. He says, and upon returning home toward the end of September, I plan to return to training with sweet spot base, uh, the second half of it again. So should I really be avoiding traditional type training in the middle of sweet spot base like this? And when he says traditional, he's talking about our traditional base plan. Yeah. Long, slow distance. Yep, exactly. He says, or should I be restarting sweet spot base one uh, when returning instead? So he should, he just go back to the very beginning. Once he comes back from this trip, Mm. he mentions he says, I am a rather new cyclist with no races planned who is strictly focused on becoming a better cyclist while improving my health. Therefore I'm open to any approach. Uh, keep up the amazing work from Chris. Yes, Chris, what you're describing is, is just, uh, kind of inserting an endurance block. You're still going to do sweet spot base one for six weeks, and then you're going to come back and do the other six weeks, but there's a, a, an interruption there, Mm -hmm. but that interruption can be made to be really productive. And the way you're rolling with it is, is ideal. Um, you could continue sweet spot base two in a, in via RPE. I mean, you've done enough, uh, -hmm. I mean, you've, you've grown your interval durations Mm -hmm. from, you know, Six to short durations up to high duration. So you've probably got a really good sense of what it feels like to sit at 90%, roughly 90% of your threshold. Mm-hmm. So you could easily recreate that with RP, I bet you. Oh yeah. However, this is a, it's an awesome opportunity to insert an endurance block. And I'm a big fan of endurance blocks for a lot of reasons. Um, it's, it's just another way to achieve aerobic uh, adaptation, you know, become a better endurance athlete by going a different route, throwing a different stimulus at your body. It's a good time to get away from, and there's not a heck of a lot of endurance in that sweet spot base one phase, mm-hmm. but it is, I mean, working at 90% does mm-hmm. put the body in a pretty elevated state in terms of that, uh, 
Yes. Uh, yeah. I feel as if I am enduring when I do those. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. They take focus. It's uncomfortable. Yeah. It wipes yep. you out. It yeah. cleans you out in terms of you know yep. sugar stores. And it's hard stuff. So to, to get a break from that and let your body kind of renormalize, let you, you know, metabolically, hormonally, to kind of take a break from that is never the worst thing. I, oh, well, yeah. I, I won't say never the worst thing. It's seldom the worst thing. And this is a great time to do it. I mean, you've, you've wrapped up an entire training phase. You've got, a, you got an interim uh Duration, you're going to slot in some easier work. Um, yeah. all, all I caution against is you don't want to go backwards over that time. So it still has to be a sufficient stimulus. Mm -hmm. If you were doing five hours of intervals and now you're going to do five hours of riding at 60%, probably going to go backwards a little bit. It has to be something that your body is, is still, uh, it has to challenge it. It has mm -hmm. to push some boundaries. So you have to figure out how you're going to do that. Maybe you're going to do it with a, a single long ride that you're not used to. Maybe you're going to tack on a few extra hours because you recognize the intensity is a little bit lower. So you're going to have to compensate with a little extra time in the saddle. Mm -hmm. um, so it still has to be a stimulus. It can be a holding pattern. That's not the worst thing either. Yeah. You know, maybe you lose just a touch of fitness, but you get a break. You know, maybe you dug yourself a pretty deep hole and you get to work yourself out of that hole so that when you do come back, you're super fresh to start that second block. Mm -hmm. Yep. No reason to repeat the first block, though. This isn't a long enough gap in between yep. for you to go back and start mm -hmm. from scratch. I would check out. Uh, so the traditional base plans are really easy <clears throat> to execute outside in the sense that it gives you a pretty wide berth on the interval targets, and it's pretty easy to be able to and yep. it's sustained stuff, not a lot of crazy structure mm -hmm. going on, right? No, and there's a, and they're really easy to slot in, too. If you have a mm -hmm. week, just grab the first week. If you have a, you know two yep. weeks, grab the first two weeks or weeks two and three. But it's, it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, and if you look at it, I would say that uh, if you were to do the, like, for example, like the traditional base has three consecutive blocks to it. Mm -hmm. If you're to do low volume three, that might be a stimulus for you or mid volume one. Um, it, it, looking at the time constraints, he'd be jumping from about four hours up to six to seven hours even. Yeah. And maybe you can't so, swing that. And, and maybe mm -hmm. it does become just kind of a, a plateau, but a plateau is not a bad thing when, when yeah. the alternative is losing fitness, yeah. not to mention it keeps your consistency up. You're still on the bike for ideally the same number of days, super ideally at the same time of day, if you can swing that, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but, but it keeps you training. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I've noticed, I've noticed, I mean, this year I did a really big block of traditional base. Actually, I did mm -hmm. sweet spot base for a short period of time. Uh, actually just the first like uh, half of sweet spot base. Uh -huh. And then after that, I went into a traditional base block and really tried to refine some things. Yeah. And it was fantastic for if me. If you want year. to extend your base phase, and there are a lot of good reasons to do that very thing, this is an excellent way to do it. Mix up sweet spot base with traditional base. And now's the time to to talk about those things because the majority of folks are going into their off season, mm -hmm. or if you're like Paul Revere, you're yelling cyclocross <laughs> is coming to everybody. Um, <laughs> but uh, shout out, I think to cat three memes or somebody yeah, that someone, shared that, that was one. A good yeah, one. That was good. Um, but <clears throat> yeah, so like, the, you know, this is a good time to look ahead and to say, Hey, this is the year that I am going to extend my base phase mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. I'll toss in this or I'll taught, you know, I, I anticipate that I'll be traveling during this period of time, but able to ride, this is where I'll throw in a few weeks of, yeah. or a couple yeah, of weeks. And I think there's a misconception Easy. too, that if I'm a long time athlete, I can't benefit from further base and I actually can trim my base down. Mm. And that's, that's true in some cases. Uh, but a lot of the time, if this is unfamiliar territory, adding a base block in is a new stimulus and it mm. can incur new adaptation, can make you a bit faster, at least, or at least pave the way for, for the speed gains that'll come later. Yep. You guys are ready to talk about cramping? <laughs> Always. Favorite topic. Favorite oh, yeah. Topic. So many misconceptions on this one. So, uh, Scala84, I believe, is, and I believe this is from the forum, but I could be wrong here, uh, says uh, basically longer distance racers. Uh, so, basically, we're going to be talking about why cramping kind of really happens. But in this case, with longer distance races, uh, this person says that Master Fours 
So f- category four masters racing, we're usually in the two to two and a half hour range, which happens to align with my training really well. A lot of my training rides it, during a lot of my training rides, I could put in more TSS than in the race mm-hmm. says the Super higher common. category races. Yeah. That's it. That is common, right? Chad? Super yeah. common. Yeah. yeah. Especially if you're good at hiding. Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. <laughs> the higher category races tend to be three to four hours. I know I've heard Nate, Chad and Jonathan talk on the podcast about how you don't need to match the duration of your races in training. Uh, however, I find when I go hard in the races past the duration I train at, I risk cramping. Uh, so again, we've talked about that at length and Nate, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess I'm, I even, uh, just Leadville and then Tahoe trail 100, everything else. I had basically done a year of 90 minute training, uh, to two hours, uh, 60 to two hours, basically 60 to 120. Mm-hmm. That was almost all of my training. And I did just fine at Tahoe trail 100. And then I did one long ride before Leadville, but it wasn't the same duration of level. I wasn't aiming for that. Yeah. And Nate did Leadville in a fast time. And I think that the longest ride he did was a three hour training ride, but it was almost all trainer stuff. Yeah. Rides as long as, or longer than your event aren't necessary. And I think we've pushed that point many, many times. Mm -hmm. There's not to say there aren't benefits to be gained from them. And it's not Mm -hmm. to say you can't do it. Um, although if you do it, make sure it's not too close to your event because there are (laughs) possibilities for too much fatigue, but, Mm -hmm. uh, they're, they're not necessary. There are benefits, but they are not necessary. So much like the rest of us, uh, this person mentions, I tend to do most of my training on weekdays after work, which is why that two ish hours tends to be my upper limit of training that I can do throughout the you week. Get a lot done in two hours. That's super common. That's mm-hmm. the majority of people. Actually, I mean, two hours would be great. I bet yeah, there's I'd a lot of people listening. They're <laughs> yeah. like, I would love yeah, two you hours. Get a lot right? done in two hours. <laughs> So, uh, anyways, uh, says, I'm curious on any thoughts on this trying to, he says, should I try to start squeezing a couple longer rides in? Uh, that's the suspicion that he has, or do I just keep trying to push my FTP up? Cause the other concept there is the fact that like, and like a higher threshold is a great fix for basically everything, because yeah. if you have a higher threshold, whatever you're riding at throughout the duration of that ride is going to be of a lower percentage of that threshold, mm-hmm. thusly less taxing on your body. Uh, and we'll get into that in just a bit. It says, I think my total weekly time of eight to 12 hours is likely enough for the racing I'm doing. And I would agree with that. If he's doing races in the two and a half, uh, yeah. two to three to four, three hour to four range. hours, even. Yeah, but it is, um, but maybe I just need to redistribute my training a bit differently. So, um, um, let's talk about that part first. There's a second question, but we'll just talk about that. Um, so I guess Chad, I mean, long rides, uh, I think a lot of the time, so I guess there's a psychological benefit too, that a person could get from mm-hmm. knowing that they could go that long. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would, I would tell if you are at that situation where you haven't ridden that long before, chances are, it's going to take quite a toll on you physically. And I would say, trust yourself and what you can do for three hours. You'll be surprised how far you can stretch that. Um, but, uh, so if you put yourself in a position where you can ride this fast for two hours, you don't have to trim off much intensity to be able to extend that two hours to three hours to four hours to Mm -hmm. five hours. And I think that's maybe what's going on here is he's trying to do this intensity that he could do for two and a half hours. And he's trying to magically grow it three or four hours. And it's overwhelming him because this is new, new territory. This is not something. Mm-hmm. He, he, he's dealt with. You can't just magically take your top level fitness and add a couple hours to it and expect your body to deal yeah. with it. Yeah. yeah. Cramping. That's when cramping happens. Like, uh, and yes, there are other things that could contribute to it. If you aren't hydrated properly, uh, if you don't have sodium on board, Plenty of possibilities. Yeah. you don't have all those things They can all mm-hmm. contribute to it, but I can guarantee you the best way to make yourself cramp is to push beyond your yeah. abilities. Yeah. And, <laughs> and let make, so, make sure so, it's intense. And, yeah. and that's it. That's it. Because single track six my, in my preparation for that and both lost and found, which both of those wrecked me with cramps. It was, uh, the, the cramps 
to Lost and Found were otherworldly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was, yeah, that, that was like a long day and a hard day. But single track six were just hard days. They weren't exceptionally long. They were like three and a half, maybe four hour races. Yeah. And I was doing five and a half, six hour water rides, nourished rides, whatever. But I could, I, I was spending a lot of time in the saddle. So yep. mm-hmm. obviously it, it wasn't that I couldn't handle that much time in the saddle or, yeah. or, or, or pedaling that long. It was because those races were hard. Yes. And you're going up a single track and you got people in front of you and people on behind you, you hang on to whatever pace that, that audience or that, that set of riders is dictating <laughs> mm-hmm. and just hope for the best. Yes. Here's another way to look at it. If you have a longer race, well, first of all, a race is always going to push yourself. You're going to push your limits, right? Yeah. And if you have a longer race, you have more time on course. This is crazy, mm-hmm. mind-breaking math right here, right? Uh, <laughs> longer race, more time on course equals more opportunities to be able to overreach. Yeah, go hard. <clears throat> yep. Right. And and that's like, yeah. and so a lot of the time we equate it with, oh, it's just the duration. It was too long. In, in almost every case, it's no, you're just riding at an intensity that you can't sustain. Yeah. Like that's, that's, and that doesn't mean that you ride at a sustained intensity the whole time. Mm-hmm. That could be because you tried to bridge for, you know, seven mm-hmm. times to different groups. Yeah, and races are it's very just too dynamic. much. Right. And, and it could have been, uh, it could have been an hour ago that you did the problem and that turns yep. into a cramp an hour later. You right? cramped mm-hmm. in a 55 minute crit. The yeah. Other day. I, I actually, so reading this question <laughs> made, made us laugh. And so I went back and I've, cr- I'm not a cramper. I barely ever cramp. Um, but I looked up the last handful of times that I've cramped and pretty much I was always at my maximum limit for like the previous 30 to 45 minutes. And that mm-hmm. seems to be what sets me up for cramping is going a hundred percent as hard as I can possibly go for yeah. 30, 45 minutes. And then all of a sudden I can't pedal anymore. Amazing, yeah. right? <laughs> Amazing yeah. how that happens. You, you push boundaries. I mean, yeah, these, this sort of thing happens. So, I mean, the way to, to curb this is to really make sure that you're, especially on long races like Leadville, it was just, we talked about this last week, but it's amazing to see how many people were riding so far outside of their limits so early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it's not necessary, right? Yeah. Like, and, and, and in fact, I would say it's necessary to do the opposite, to pace yourself. Well, pacing yourself, well, making sure that you have adequate training leading into something like this mm-hmm. for the pacing plan that you're going to do. Yep. That is the best way in my mind to avoid cramping. Yeah. Yeah. You have to be realistic. If you know what you can do for three hours and you're going to go out and try to do that for four hours, you mm-hmm. got to expect some fallout. It's, yeah. it's, yeah. Not, it's not going to work that tightly. I promise. And, but you don't have to turn it down a whole lot to be able to stretch. No, that and that's to four the beauty hours. of it. So if you know what you can do for three hours, then if you do 90% of that, it's, it's very reasonable to expect mm-hmm. you can do that for four hours, maybe five hours. Yeah, mm-hmm. It's impressive. Yeah, and, and this is a, an, an instance that really drives home the point of being able to vary your intensity. And, and if you work through our base build and specialty cycles, once you get into the specialty rides, the specialty workouts, you'll start to see a lot of combination mm-hmm. in the, in the intervals because of this very thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, races seldom take place at a single pace. I mean, <laughs> I mean, if you're riding a century right. and you can go yeah. super steady or you're doing a triathlon, you go super steady. Yeah. And that's yeah. reflected in those specialty workouts. But when it comes to mass start racing or criteriums, road races, mountain bike races, Cycle you have cross. to be able to go from high intensity back to moderate intensity up to extremely high intensity. I mean, you're bouncing all over the place oh, for yeah. hours on end. Mm-hmm. And if you're unfamiliar with that sort of stress too, I mean, and it's really hard to get a handle on that unless you've exposed yourself to those very things. That's mm-hmm. those combinations. Yeah. This is like a long-term cure to cramps. Whereas a very short-term cure to Physical cramps preparation. Is, is, is pickle juice, that yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah. Well, and don't go so hard. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? Like that's a cure for cramps. Yes. Don't go so hard. That's a long-term one. <laughs> yeah. That's one you can rely on, right? <laughs> um, and, and it's, mm-hmm. and I feel like it's one that, and like we said, there are plenty of factors that can contribute to cramps, but if you are pacing properly for your abilities and for what you've trained for coming in, 
it's you're gonna set yourself up for to have a much less uh, lower likelihood of cramps. Yeah, I'm so. the cramp king, or I have been, and I can trace every one of my cramping instances back to where I just went above and beyond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I can look at it and say, "There's no way I was doing enough training to be able to do that day after day, yep. yeah, or hour after hour." Yep, and it can be a position change. It can be. It doesn't sure. have to just be you know something like oh, that. Yeah. It can mm-hmm. just for you're, sure. you're working in a foreign environment, one way or another, yeah. right? Uh, whether yeah, it's, it's by a, intensity, it's a muscle or, stimulus that your muscles are not accustomed to. Yep, mm-hmm. it could be heat, could be position, could be pace, could be all those things. Mm-hmm. But it's basically working outside yourself. So, Casper's uh, question says: First of all, great podcast. I've used many of your insights throughout my career, in particular with regards to time trialing and heat acclimation. Casper's super fast. Says <laughs> super I'm, a, fast. I'm a Danish cat one rider racing at the highest national level ranked number 28 that is crazy in the national tt for 50 in the road race that's pretty impressive so yeah. i mean and, and the danes for those that know they're kind of fast they're pretty you know? fast <laughs> yeah, yeah i'd good. say so <laughs> i think that we have some fast racers uh, at the top of the sport that are proving that right now he says i have an ftp of approximately 410 to 415 watts that's a lot that's, that's a lot. so crazy he's a big guy but that's still a can lot. you imagine how much he has to eat to be able to stay on top of things you know when you're yeah. when you're working at that high of a level also like crosswinds they wouldn't even matter at that level. <laughs> no <laughs> It's that. like getting a Mack truck. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Doesn't care. Yeah. He makes crosswinds. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he says 86 kilograms, 205 centimeters tall. Chad, I think you were the one that tossed these in. Thank you for doing that. Yeah, we're That's talking like 6'8", 6'9". Yeah. It's a tall guy. 190 pounds. Uh, it's pretty crazy. And about 4.8 watts per kilogram. So but that 4.8 watts is 415 watts. Yeah, <laughs> I know. That's I, want, I want that guy on my team. Yeah, yeah. I know, right? Can you imagine? Uh, actually, now that you've shared this, beware. Like, <laughs> Quick Step might be calling you, right? <laughs> They're going to hear about you Hopefully. and want you on. Yeah. Fingers crossed. Yeah, the numbers <laughs> are there. That's for sure. He says, uh, and, and then he says, yeah, Nate, that's right. I'm taller than you. Nice. <laughs> we finally got somebody taller than Nate writing in. That's good. Uh, he's kind of a lot taller. I'm in two or three inches. Yeah, that's a, that's a tall human. So he says, uh, I've ridden consistently for the past five years or so from age 20 to 25. However, I just graduated university this summer and will start my full-time employment in mid-August. I will naturally devote much less time to cycling now that I have decided to stop racing competitively. I have a prediction on that. You don't think he's going to stop? <laughs> nope. <laughs> and there's the, I think he'll always be competitive, and I think that he will still end up racing, and I bet he'll end up racing a ton. Mm-hmm. He's going to go out there and race and start to try, try to wrap his mind around the idea of just not doing very well. Yeah. I, oh, it won't work. It doesn't work. No, no, it won't work for him. So um, it, it'll probably turn down for a bit, then it'll come right back up, right? Mm-hmm. So he says, my question, how much and how quickly will my fitness evaporate? You can either assume that I do no training at all, or it's limited to weekday rides where I would total 300 to 400 TSS or weekend rides. Forgive me. Thanks, Chad. Uh, Totaling 300 to 400 TSS over the course of the weekend. That is compared to my usual 800 to 900 TSS weeks. I hope you can find the time to answer my question in the podcast. And I know that my particular example is not applicable to a ton of people. However, I think that detraining, the detraining aspect could be interesting to a wider audience. He's absolutely right. This question is applicable to everybody. A hundred percent. Yeah. And that's really why we, why we covered it. Right. Mm-hmm. Or why we chose to. Um, so yeah, I guess how quickly do you lose fitness? We've well, covered this before. But... Actually, let me cover one thing prior yeah. to we'll, we'll review the training residuals. We've talked about a few times. Sure. But first off, my concern with his case is specifically is that he's either not going to ride at all, or he's going to get it all on the weekend. So mm. all his training stimulus is going to come in a two day block and then he's going to have five days of detraining. Mm-hmm. First couple of days might qualify as recovery, but after that, mm-hmm. it's just slip, slip, slip. So 
if I can, can impart any advice at all, it would be to find a way to weave in more consistent training. If you've got the time and man, you can get on the bike for even 30 minutes a day yep. and do some high intensity work. It will, it will, uh, mitigate that decline. Otherwise you're, you're going to lose fitness so fast. It's going to be very humbling, very discouraging. Yeah. Coupled with those weekend rides, mm -hmm. you know, if he has, like you said, the 30 to 45 minute ones, and we have a ton of, we have a ton of workouts that are 30 to 45 minutes yeah. that are high intensity and he perfect just needs for that. to touch things up a bit over the course of the week. Never yep. get too far from some form of training stimulus. Yep. Yeah. It can help a ton. And there are a lot of very fast people that do that. Take that very approach Yes, where they do. I mean, they don't have time to do a ton of crazy mm -hmm. workouts. Yeah. And, and that's actually one of the goals that I want to do personally this year is when I don't have time just to do 30 minutes, mm -hmm. you know, rather than just skipping the work entirely. Yeah. It's just, it's just a touch up mm -hmm. and you know, you may not see big gains. You may not see any gains at all. Um, you may still see a slight decline in fitness, but it won't be what would happen if you don't train for five days and then do train for two mm -hmm. and repeat that. That's, yeah. uh, that's not going to go well. Um, so residuals. But uh, maybe this position he's in, I don't know. His, his days yeah, may be so point. booked that he's only going to be able to ride on the weekend. So he's going to have to get in as much as he can. That's so what you can just do. do, you know, all you can do is all you can do, but expect your fitness to, to fade. Yeah. It's going to go away. Not all of it, of course, but you're only going to be, be able to maintain so much of it, especially considering you're operating at a really high level. So it's not, it's a different sorts of fitness fall off in different sorts of ways. Yeah. Right? So if you think of it in terms of how, how long it takes to cultivate that type of fitness, it basically evaporates at the same rate. So, so if you, if it takes <laughs> you 30, 30 days of, you know, long, slow distance work to push your aerobic capacity up to a certain point, it'll take you roughly 30 days to return to where you were, mm. give or take. Mm. Um, so, so just know that if, if an energy system is slow to build, it's also slow to fade. Mm -hmm. And then, then that goes that counter that the quicker it builds, the quicker it fades. So, mm. so sprint work, you can drum up some good sprint fitness and five to seven hard workouts spread over the course of 10 days and you can lose it just as quickly. Oh, darn By it. the next Saturday, it's gone. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Not all of it, of course, but yeah, yeah, it starts to decline. Yeah. Um, so I looked at, so if you look at training residuals for aerobic endurance, so just, mm -hmm. you know, um, aerobic capacity, but at low intensity, that's the one that takes a long time to dissipate. And they put hard numbers on these, but of course they're not hard numbers. So, so 30 days plus or minus five days. So of course the 25 to 35 days, you're probably going to return to baseline mm -hmm. is, is the, the science anyway. Um, so in order to maintain that, you simply need maybe one, even two multi-hour rides a week. Um, what multi-hour is, is going to depend on what you've adapted to. Mm -hmm. So for some riders, uh, a weekend two-hour ride is a pretty hefty training stimulus. For others, that's a spin in the park. It's a, mm -hmm. it's, it's a noodle fest. So they need to, this guy probably needs five or six-hour rides. And that's, <laughs> yeah, I don't know if he has that much time. Tough. But if all it's looking to do is maintain it. Maybe he can get out there and do a solid three or four hour ride. Mm -hmm. Maybe he can come into it in a depleted state in terms of carbohydrate stores and, and further the, the stimulus that he's trying to mm -hmm. trying to achieve. Well, um, not make it easier if you do that, but <laughs> no, no it's, it's, it's pretty uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> and then your aerobic or your anaerobic capacity. So, you know, the high end of things, um, takes on the order of 18 plus or minus four days. So 22 down to what, 14 days. Yeah. So a couple weeks, a couple, three weeks. Mm. Um, but to touch that up, one time a week, do do a workout that has some hard thirty to sixty second, you know, forty five second efforts. Spanish needles once a week. Stuff. Uh, yeah, that's I, I. If you're looking for rope anaerobic capacity, I would do something that had a lot more rest, a lot more recovery mm -hmm. between cool. intervals, so you can really hit it hard, really recharge, really hit it hard. So yeah. long long breaks between efforts. Cool. Um, and then muscle endurance is so your threshold and sweet spot stuff. 
15 plus 15 plus or minus five days. So again, a couple, three weeks ish. Mm -hmm. Um, but, but again, all it takes to maintain that fitness is, is a workout a week. So throw in a two by 20, Mm -hmm. a two by 20 threshold workout, or or even 90% sweet spot sort of workout. Mm -hmm. You're going to maintain most of those gains. And then sprint, like I said, it's super, super rapid. You, know, you spend five days, um, and then the, the residuals here is five plus or minus three days. So you start to lose it after just a couple of days, you know, at the, at the end of a week. <laughs> so <laughs> back to where you were, yeah. unless you stay on top of it. Yeah. That's the idea. You, you can't just build it up and then hope that it hangs on. That These things don't hang on for very long. But the way I broke this down is if he does a single multi-hour ride, so say he rides, manages to work in a uh, six-hour ride or, or a five-hour ride, at about 60% mm-hmm. FTP, that's 180 TSS. Yeah. If he gets in one anaerobic capacity workout, and we do those all the time, right? Inside mm-hmm. of an hour or two, they're about 80 TSS rides. Mm-hmm. And then he does a muscle endurance ride, a two by 20. Again, about an 80 TSS ride, give mm-hmm. or take. And then he does a single sprint session. You can keep the TSS way down on a sprint session. Make mm-hmm. him real short, just just really hit it and quit it, and maybe 50 TSS. Yep. All, all of which totals 390 TSS. He said he's got, you know, on the weekend, he can do three to 400 TSS. And I know we're only talking TSS here. We're not talking time, and time is the big issue. But if he can do that, and he lumps, say, the the long ride and the muscle endurance, the two by 20 into a single ride on a Saturday. Mm-hmm. And then on Sunday does his sprint and his anaerobic capacity work. I mean, that's something it's still, I mean, their, their residuals or their, their training benefits, uh, forms of fitness that are being touched up mm-hmm. in a couple days back to back. So it's probably not going to work. Ideally, it's, it's not going to be the, the best way to, to approach it. But if that's, if that's the situation he's in and he's only got those two days, there is a way to get everything jammed into those two days and probably see less of a decline in fitness than he would see if he just goes out and does a couple group rides. And just rides, yeah. Mm-hmm. Or a couple, you know, long, slow distance rides by himself. So I'm going to recap a couple options. So basically he could do the long multi-hour rides on the weekend, if you can, or on the weekend. And if you can train during the week, then you would have a 60 minute workout, a 60 or 45 minute workout on the two by 20, depending yeah, on I, how honestly, you structure. I don't think anything other than that long multi-hour ride on the weekend needs to be longer than an hour. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the sprint workout could be a half hour workout. Yeah. yeah. And so you'd have basically a, a 60 minute workout or two 60 minute workouts during the week. And then maybe even a 30 or 45 minute workout that you would have during the week as well. Yep. So, or but try to if squeeze he has it all to jam in. it all in a, in, in a weekend, start with that. Um, actually you might start with the harder, the, 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 maybe shift to Saturday, your sprint workout and your anaerobic yeah. capacity workout, and then come back first. Sunday and just do a long ride and know that somewhere within that long ride, done it roughly 60% of threshold, just a, you know, butter burner, put in a couple 20 minute solid efforts in your threshold. Yep. You can, yeah. you can jam it all in there. And like I said, the outcome is not going to be ideal, but I, if I were coaching you, this is what I would try Yeah. for, for a couple months, a couple couple months, probably. That's pretty sweet. I bet a lot of, hopefully when you were listening to this, you were taking notes just now because that's, that's pretty cool to, to get basically that sort of prescription kind of laid out and it all makes sense. And it's basically what we try to do with the training plan when we're training somebody. It's just, and, and as you can see, you can only train so much in terms of what your body can sustain or what time you have. Yeah. And, and he has the, the luxury of being very fit. So I think he can actually do all this in a week. I'm sure he can, he can mm-hmm. do all this in a weekend for sure. What the outcome is going to be, how it's going to affect him in terms of performance over the, the longer term. I, I'm curious to see. 
Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting. Uh, next question is from Akshay. I hope that's how you say the name. I, repri- I apologize if not. It says, thanks to a push from my wife, I recently started racing Cat 3 cross-country I'm sorry, races. This is, this, I'm totally derailing. Yeah. There, were, there were some really important points that we didn't get oh, to. Oh, shoot. Okay, yeah. Yeah, let's go back and to I don't, it. I yeah, can't yeah. figure out a seamless way to jump back to it. <laughs> so let's just, just go gonna, in. Let's do it. Interrupt stop. Um, one thing that you also have weighing in your favor is that you have five years of consistent training. So mm-hmm. so the endurances mm-hmm. that, the, the adaptations that take place over those five years are deep, deeply set. Yeah. So know that you're not going to lose fitness as quickly as somebody who's only been training sporadically for a couple, three years. We talked okay. about that with muscle nuclei. Yeah. Right? So, so when, and that, and that was a study done in mice and I know some people have shot it down because of that, but it's, it, it, these are findings that we're extrapolating into humans. So that's theoretical right now. And, that, and that's, that's all it can be. But over time, we may find that it's true. We may find that it's not. It doesn't really matter because something's going on there. Mm-hmm. People who train for a long time and do it consistently do retain their fitness longer than the noobs. Mm-hmm. It's just how it is. Yeah. Um, so what We've explains it? We've all noticed it? that. Yeah. We've all seen that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And then secondly, you might be surprised by how much work you actually need to do. That there, there are to- so many times where people jam as much training into their training schedule as they can, thinking this is how this is how I optimize, this is how I get as fast as I'm going to get based on how much time I have, based on where my my six week training load is, based on you know, what workouts seem to work for me. Never recognizing the fact that they could probably do a lot less and still derive the same level of performance. That uh, so many people are, are are more prone to overdoing it than underdoing it, mm-hmm. and rightly so. I understand the mindset, but the fact is. A lot of people you know, get injured or for whatever reason, get pulled away from training and they end up doing a lot less for a short period of time and they get uh, uh, an upswing because of it. They mm-hmm. actually benefit from it mm-hmm. because they were doing too much or they were just carrying too much fatigue and, and kept, on, kept on tamping down their performance by heaping more fatigue on it and never really got on top of things, never had that series or that string of good workouts. Yeah. And you may find that when you cut it back that your performance actually ticks up for a little while mm-hmm. or maybe... I don't know that it's going to go up, up considering he's yeah. a, he's a very high volume, high level racer, but might you, same, you might right? see that, that a little less work actually efficiency. That's what it comes yeah, down to. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think for so many of us listening to this, that's, you know, we, we are searching for the most efficient way to train because we are constrained and that's just how it works. I mean, mm-hmm. Pete, you're a really good example of this. I feel like, because you're able to do quite a lot in terms of racing, uh, interview on, performances on, uh, on not a lot and yeah. you've and it's not like you're just choosing i don't want to train a lot it's just life doesn't allow <laughs> yeah, you to life train. doesn't allow me to train as much as it used to <laughs> yeah but, exactly and i think i'm sort of in this uh i'm lucky where i had a handful of years of high volume mm-hmm. so i came off of a lot of like 800 900 ts weeks also mm-hmm. um and then that really carried me for a couple years like to be totally honest, mm-hmm. I had to train like I probably trained less than your prescribed yeah. uh, amount, Chad. And I could do three or four hours a week and be good enough. So still race pretty mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's and, what uh, I'm trying but, to get across. Yeah, it's it is capitalizing. I was very efficient with my time, though. Yep. So I didn't waste any workout time. I always made sure I was doing something productive mm-hmm. and structured. And I did do group rides, but I pick picked and choose right. Yep, the yeah. right group rides. The right group rides. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's yeah. not to say you have to have this multi-year base in, in your, no. in your, uh, body, in your legs to be able to do this. You can still make a lot of, uh, see a lot of performance gain for not a lot of, yeah, there's, there's a training we, investment. A lot of the guys on our team, we talk about this 90% where you can do, you can be 90% as fast as you could possibly be on about 
a fifth of the volume. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, it's true. And so that, are, you know, it's different for everybody, but you can be 90% as fast as you pot, as your ceiling is mm-hmm. on about, you know, somewhere between a quarter and a half of the volume to get you to 100%. So yep. think about where that, where your priorities lie. And if there's a lot of life things going on, you can still be fast enough to do all the things you want to do. Um, it's just finding that sweet spot. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Because all of you, all of you guys, basically everybody on the on the Cliff team is a professional in some other regard. Yeah, it has a real job, right? Carries a real job, and <laughs> then also races. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, it's possible. It's, it's possible. possible to do it. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah. Take heart. Um, so uh, actually, once again, I hope that's how you say it. I apologize if not, but, uh, thanks to a push from my wife. I recently started racing cat three XC in the Wisconsin off road series. I have only had two races so far, but I'm doing better than I expected and having tons of fun doing it. The races are not terribly long being cat three. I'm only racing for around 45 to 60 minutes. A nice mid coffee poured there for, for Pete Pretty and Chad. Good, huh? Yeah. Things you can see if you watch us live on YouTube <laughs> and you just missed Chad, the podcast. Chad topping up coffees. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> So he says the races aren't terribly long racing for around 45 to 60 minutes. I can get through a race without drinking any fluids, but I feel more comfortable if I take a drink after my first lap. I found during my races that drinking fluids makes me feel really nauseous. I'm thinking that it is heavy efforts during a race. Do you have any suggestions on why I might be getting nauseous and why or while drinking during a race? Um, and then he says, as a side note, it's great to hear you guys talk at your level about how your wives crew for you. And he's mentioning episode 214, where I was talking about cross country nationals. He says, my wife is my training coach, nutritionist, and her and my daughter are my crew. And I love having them be a part of my sport. Yeah. Pretty for those of us that have friends and family that can help with racing. We're very fortunate. We shouldn't miss any, any opportunity to thank them. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's super important. It's very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. A very selfless act by them. So thank you, Sarah and Simon. I appreciate it. <laughs> So, um, okay. So drinking and in short races, we've talked about this with cyclocross and time trials before, you know, like if it's a TT and it's not an hour long, sometimes you put the bottle on there because it's more arrow. Like in the case of your giant Trinity advanced, I think Mm -hmm. like they've said that it's more arrow to have the bottle there. Although side note really quick, I've heard that they're now forcing you to carry liquid in those bottles. I did hear that. If your bottle is empty, that they, they consider it a fairing. If it has Seriously? something in there. Yeah. Then they consider UCI? it like an integral part. Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't USAC, know. We heard. Yeah. We, it was floating around at the last time trial. Good yeah. Lord. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but anyways, uh, we, I didn't carry a bottle during my 40 KTT. Mm-hmm. You didn't carry a bottle. Um, Actually, did you, I did. Did yeah. you take a drink? Uh, no, yeah, yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. I didn't. Drink. So be had it there just in case, uh, for peace of mind <laughs> is one thing. If you get, it's not likely you're going to get in a real dark place because of energy depletion over a short event like that. Uh-huh. But knowing that I had a little sugar sitting there, should that happen? And I just yeah. have to hobble the last 10 K home. <laughs> yeah. 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 I had some, but I didn't drink it. Uh, cyclocross is another one where, um, you know, if you I mean, if you're racing UCI stuff, you just take a hand up every time in the pits yeah. and you don't carry one on your bike. For a lot of us amateur guys, we might put a bottle cage on the seat tube instead of the down tube mm-hmm. and carry one there. But I've found that in cyclocross races, I do not carry a bottle. They're 45 minutes <laughs> to, to an hour. Yeah. Unless I'm carrying my bike over an obstacle. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just don't have the time, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, I have, I've suffered with just dry mouth, which I always find I get over. Mm-hmm. Uh, after a while. I think that's one of the best arguments for short races, short race fluids. Uh, yeah. With j- just, a, just, just to combat dry mouth, yeah. such an uncomfortable thing, especially on a hot or a hot dry night, which is all we race in around here, mm-hmm. our twilight series. And it's tricky too, because 
you know, we've talked about this before, any small little thing that is bothering you and distracting you, like dry mouth, you're going to live. It's not, it's not like, <laughs> it's not, not going to kill, kill you. you. <laughs> but at the same time, when you have that dry mouth, it, it's surprising the effect that it has on your power output mm. or your ability to focus and any, ride any distraction, properly. Really. Yeah. yeah it's, it just it takes all, the smallest thing. It all We're chips so away fragile. It. It's frustrating. Um, <laughs> uh, but uh, what about on the mm -hmm. nausea side of things? Yeah. So the That's effort acts absolutely led to that. I mean, mm -hmm. we start working hard, our gut permeability suffers as a consequence of it. I mean, you get also all forms of gastric distress. So that could be it in an, I mean, that just that simple. And then, you know, when you talk about fluids, what are you talking about? Are you talking about water? Are you talking about carbohydrate fluid, light carbohydrate fluid? Mm -hmm. Are you, you know, got you can in your bottle or something? I mean, are you, it depends what's in there mm -hmm. and start there. I mean, if you know there's something other than water in your bottles, it's probably something that's not tolerable, especially during high intensity. You need to start messing with what's in there. Maybe just the dilution level. Maybe it can't be anything other than water for you. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Yeah. yeah. And everybody's a little different, right? Like some people just have iron guts oh, yeah. and they can, like, they could drink milk. <laughs> yes, that's Nate. Nate could be just drinking like yeah. whole cow's milk right there. He, he can get yeah. 90 grams of carbohydrate in over the course of a criterion. Yes. Mm -hmm. If I even whiff carbohydrate, I start to get sick. Yeah. And a pizza. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it's definitely a tuning thing where you tune for yourself and try, start, start light. Like, uh, especially with nausea, I think start with water and mm -hmm. work your way up uh, carbohydrate wise. Right. Yeah. Like you do I a agree. pretty good mix. Um, yeah. So I, I basically, so I guess the first thing that I would say is make sure you come in topped off. Mm -hmm. So like, uh, that's one thing that you see for like, uh, so I, when I was staying with the stands pivot team mm -hmm. for some of the pro XCTs this year, uh, an average person probably would have thought these people are getting ready to ride Leadville because of the fact that they were making sure they took in a ton of carbs mm -hmm. and they were doing that stuff with dinner the night before and then breakfast, lunch, whatever else that came before the race, they were taking in a lot. Yeah, they coming, weren't coming, coming in, in topped off is more than half the battle in yep. terms of staying nourished. Almost you have, all the you have to have it in the muscles. <laughs> yes. It's gotta be, if your muscles aren't loaded up, you're, you're, you'll pay a penalty for it at some point, especially during longer events. Yeah. And that's what allows me to do the mixture. Like what you were talking about, Pete, I mean, I make sure I eat plenty coming in and then I use Martin 320. So that's going to be 80 grams of carbohydrate and one 500, one bottle of 500 milliliters of liquid. So if you're watching on the podcast, like a standard bottle like this, right? So that'd be 80 grams of carbohydrate. That's, that's pretty darn dense. And that might be Fair. really tough for my body to be able to take in during really high intensity with that, with Martin specifically, I've done it before and it's fine, but I also, I have found that I have experienced gut distress in those scenarios. Whereas if it's slightly lower intensity or slightly longer race, mm -hmm. so the intensity is a little lower, it's not the case. So yeah, what yeah. I actually do is I fill up one bottle and then I take that bottle and I just split it into two. Mm -hmm. And then I, after it's mixed up, you know, and then after that, then I fill that with water and then that, then I have my pre-race bottle that I'm just sipping on. Mm -hmm. And then I have my race bottle. So 40 grams prior, 40 grams during. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I won't finish my whole pre-race bottle. So I'm probably only getting 20 grams. Yeah. And during the race, I'll probably drink down one. And many times if I do have the luxury of having my family supporting me there, I'll actually take that one bottle and I'll split it up into however many laps we have. Mm -hmm. So three or four laps. Oh, nice. And then, so it's, it's very minor. Like I wouldn't even notice really the taste. Um, mm -hmm. but basically what I'm doing there is I'm just making sure that, Hey, I'm getting something. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. And what you, what you get 
that bottle pales in comparison to what's in your muscles. Mm -hmm. Yes. So you can't let it all rely on that. So for mm -hmm. instance, if you're you're doing a four lap race, you can't take four four <laughs> eighty gram fills <laughs> yeah. and think, oh, this is three hundred twenty grams. I got yeah. I got plenty of fuel to. It's going to be this. so hard to absorb. You can't. Yeah. I mean, yeah. not at a, not at a reasonable work level. Yeah. Uh, maybe someone out there can. Maybe Nate can. I. Mm -hmm. I when we're talking cross country cannot. racing, it's just so tough mm -hmm. with the yeah. amount of intensity you're you're, you're facing. And, and criteriums too. Yeah, criteria. That's what. I, I'm on the same boat as John. I pretty much pack all my drink mix into the 30 minutes before the race starts. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and then I, I just do pure water because I'm a sprayer. I like to spray myself off, and uh, drink mix doesn't lend it itself. It doesn't work well. To spraying that. yourself. <laughs> uh, but I don't drink that much during the race. Just, uh, yeah. yeah. You just don't need to. But that yep. 30 minute window beforehand is definitely super important. Yeah. Um, and, and for what it's worth, I've talked about this before, but if I do have hand ups, you know, and I have a bottle, uh, I take a bottle each lap. And in most cross country races, I I then don't even carry a bottle on my bike. I just take the bottle in the pits and I just try to chug as much as I can of that thing get then get rid of it. Um, and then I might carry a gel or two with me if I needed to is like the backup if things go awry. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but and, that's basically it. And another finer point is it might be the type of sugar, you know, maybe mm -hmm. you know, glucose is no problem for most people. Maybe you put a little fructose in it and, and the wheels start to come off the wagon. You start to get a little bit of that, uh, gastric distress and maybe it is tied to a particular type of sugar. Yeah. So consider that too. So if, if it is in fact a sports drink and you're trying a number of different things and nothing seems to be helping, maybe look at the actual sugars in those drinks. That's a good point. What about, uh, I guess the fat contribution side of things. Yeah. Just there? in doing, in, when it, when, when people talk about preloading, they get super caught up in the numbers. I know that I'm going to work this hard and that puts me roughly this many calories per hour. It's this many hours of racing. This is how many calories I need packed into my muscles in order to, or this, this is how many grams of carbohydrate I need to ingest during my preloading, my carbo loading in order to have a good race. And this is just another example of don't get so caught up in the numbers because it doesn't work quite that cleanly. You don't go out there and just burn carbohydrate. Yes. Yeah, so, so maybe you have so many grams of carbohydrate in the system and that matches up with what you're going to, uh, the number of calories you'll expend over the course of the race, but you're deriving energy from fat. You're deriving energy mm -hmm. from lactate that comes as a byproduct of, of the mm -hmm. anaerobic metabolism. You're getting some from protein, especially as, as longer, uh, longer events wind, wind on. Um, so it's don't, just don't get hung up so hung up on your preloading that that you miss that there are other contributions because i'll tell you if you if you preload identical to the demands the caloric demands of a course by the end of that race you will not have burned off all of that carbohydrate I, mm -hmm. I can almost assure it and and simplest way to see is over time a mirror test yeah take that shirt off stand in front of the mirror if you got fat <laughs> hanging off the front of your body you're in energy surplus you're getting it wrong i mean it may not be that big of a concern to have a little extra fat on, but yeah. as, as higher level racers, and you watch those guys, they're extremely lean. Yep. They do a ton of work. They're very fast. They eat a ton. They have struck a really good balance. Yep. They pack no extra weight because they can't, not to be competitive at that end of things. Right. We don't have those same demands. We we get a little bit of wiggle room. We can put a little extra fat on our bodies and, and it won't vastly impact our performance, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but it is still kind of some low hanging fruit. It's less weight to cart around. Yeah. You feel better if you look better. When it comes to substrate utilization, we've said this so many times, but it's not a system of switches. It's a system of faders. Yeah. And it's constantly a gradient mesh between all of them, right? Yeah. So, There's always yeah. some fat going on. There's always some glucose being burned. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah. Yeah. Uh, dry mouth. Can I ask you guys' opinion on something with this? Yeah. I have recently, this year, decided to stop treating dry mouth with drinking water in the beginning of a race. So, like, I, my, I get dry mouth in the beginning of a race almost every time. Mm -hmm. And I found that if I drink and, you know, satiate myself with that, then 
I was I I get dry mouth again, and then I feel like I need the bottle, <laughs> and I just keep going and I keep going and I keep going, and, and then you run out of water, and, and then you're you like, run out of water, oh and you're God. like, certain death is right in front of me, right? Crossing <laughs> so, the Sahara, yeah, exactly right, <laughs> and it's a forty five minute crit, yeah. <laughs> but I've actually stopped doing that, and I actually force myself to kind of go through the first bit of a race, and not be reaching for that bottle, and I've found. I've, this could totally be me, but I just want to see if there's anybody else as weird as me. I found that when I don't do that, my dry mouth goes away. My body seems to solve the problem. That makes it sound naturally. Like, <clears throat> makes it sound psychological. Yeah, uh, I think chocolate. I think a lot of it is. <laughs> Hopefully, Chad lives. Yeah, Chad I, has dry mouth right now. Yeah, he does. Yeah, <laughs> I, I think that it is psychological for me, and I feel like I, I. And also, I don't know if my body like somehow sends a signal to be like, "Hey, salivate." Like, do you do you get dry mouth when you're doing intervals, like workouts? Yeah. So you get them all the, you get dry mouth all the time. Yeah, do you, do you yeah, have it right now? No, I don't. <laughs> As I drink from the bottle. <laughs> uh, no, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I wonder if it's just, I don't know. It's like a training response. Like, uh, I wonder, I don't get dry mouth, so I can't. It's interesting. I don't know. I don't even where to begin looking. I get, see, I get, I have like the hot legs. That's why I spray myself. So I, maybe I could not spray myself. I noticed myself. this. Yeah, yeah, give I, it a shot. Yeah, I'm see if your legs There's cool no down. There's more races this year. So yeah, that's God. true. There is one more next <laughs> not, week. Yeah, I won't be here. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. But anywho, I, if if you're weird like me, let us know. Go to forum.trainroad.com or if you're watching on YouTube, just let us know. Dry uh, mouth. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Ryan's question. He says, first of all, thanks for all you guys do. I just completed my fourth Ironman in three years. Way to oh, go. Nice. Following the train road plans and my results have exceeded my expectations. Fantastic. Way to go. A four Ironmans in three years. I'm terrified thinking of one in three years. <laughs> yeah, one three years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> especially considering he says, uh, so he, he's satisfied with the, the results, and he says, especially considering I did not come from an endurance sport background. The way you break things down and structure the workouts pretty much takes all the thinking out of the planning for me. I can't wait to try the outside workouts next. Good to hear, Ryan. Good, uh, nice give it a cool. shot. Says my question is about post workout and core temperature. I have to do a lot of my workouts early in the morning. And as a working father of three young ones, I don't always have a lot of time after a workout to clean up, quickly stretch, shower, and dress for work. Forgive me. A lot of times, especially after really intense bike workouts and most runs, I find that my core temp is still running very high by the time I'm walking out the door for my drive to work. Unfortunately, I'm required to wear a suit and tie to work 99% of work of my work days and sweating buckets in a monkey suit is not fun. <laughs> not, not, and he says, not the looks I get from my sales team when I show up to work with a soaked dress shirt. Yeah, I'm sure that would be pretty bad. Uh, this gets even worse in the summer when the outdoor temps slow the cooling process even further. So I guess my question is a two part one. Number one, would I be hurting the adaptation process or harming my body at all by trying to get my core temp down quickly after a workout to stop sweating so much? much. Maybe I'm misunderstanding why I'm sweating. If so, I look forward to a deep dive from coach Chad with a lot of big words. I don't understand, but somehow pick up what he's putting down. <laughs> and then, uh, the second point on top of this, then we'll go through and cover it all. Uh, if it's okay to try to cool down so quickly, what are the best methods I could use? And basically says, uh, I'm going to just finish this up. Thanks as always with all the kind <coughs> words people send in. I still don't think it's doing you and the TR team justice. That's awesome. Reading this for the rest of the trainer road team. That's watching this. I'm sure right now too. Uh, thanks to everybody for all they do. I would have dropped endurance sports a long time ago if I didn't get get involved with trainer road. And now I'm adding different bikes to the collection and starting to get into different types of riding. So, uh, okay. Going back to it, is he doing anything? So would he be hurting the adaptation process or harming his body? By trying to get the core temp down, sure. so he isn't a sweaty mess. Yeah. So, so who are we talking to? We're talking to Ryan. So I think what Ryan's talking about um, when he's 
referring to the, the adaptation process is the, the heat stress component. So heat stress exposure and, and how we adapt to it, whether it, it comes about just from riding in the heat or we actually chase it via saunas and, and immersion and, and whatnot is uh, termed hyperthermic training. Mm-hmm. So we're just trying to elevate body temperature and derive some uh, training effect from it. Mm-hmm. And it comes down to three very basic ideas or principles, time, temperature, and frequency. So if you just kind of keep that in mind, it's each one of those, how the three uh, interplay is going to determine the the uh, height of the effect. Yeah, so, makes sense. Yeah, so he's just kind of trimming one of those variables, uh, the, the time component, a little bit. So any <clears throat> benefit that we do derive from hyperthermic training, you're just cutting a little bit short. I I can't put hard numbers on it and nothing I could find in in the research said either that it has to be kept for this period of time to have any effect. I mean, depending on how you can combine the temperature with the duration and how frequently you do it and over how many days and all all these things add up to different types of physiologic uh, benefits. Mm So if you're cheating them ever so slightly, I mean, you're still deriving most of them during the, I mean, just the workout itself ramps us up. Um, <laughs> the post-workout where you stay ramped up, it, it, you're, you're still achieving this, uh, this strain and this mm-hmm. strain is still um, necessitating certain responses from the body. So I, I wouldn't get too hung up on it. Um, I would see it more from a practical perspective of showing up to work sloppy, sweaty, and having to endure that. Cause I yeah. mean, that, that's a form of stress in and of itself. Oh yeah. Um, not to mention that after a workout, you kind of want to start to recover and recovery will absolutely be impeded if you keep your body temperature elevated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for those reasons, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sweat this too much. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, yes. I wouldn't worry about this. Oh, solid, Chad. You're not <laughs> right? even a dad. So, <laughs> but with, um, just to get into a little bit of the science in, in no way a deep dive, just a couple things I want to talk about. And actually the more I looked into these, these things, both of them probably do merit a deep dive at some point, probably mm-hmm. be pretty interesting, mm-hmm. but some of the, rea- uh, the adaptations that take place when we expose ourselves to heat. Um, repeatedly uh, and, and basically grow our work capacity in hot environments rather than let heat restrict us. We kind of learn how to work with it because our body has done certain things. And one of them is we get an elevation in what are called heat shock proteins. Mm. So pretty self-explanatory. I mean, it's all in the term heat shock proteins, proteins that manifest as a response to the shock placed upon us by heat. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a pretty cool term, right? Yeah. Heat I shock can't, proteins, I right? can't wait for more heat shock proteins. I, yeah, yeah, so, I feel so like... this is one I do want to dive on because yeah. there, there was, I won't do it today because I didn't prepare it, but um, it's absolutely one that it, it takes place anyway, whether you do hyperthermic training or not. We get on a bike and we do intervals. We're ramping our core temperature up and we get an, a greater expression of these heat shock proteins. Mm-hmm. And they do a lot of wonderful things for us, mm-hmm. a lot. What do they do? Um, so <laughs> just just a bullet point yeah. review they scavenge free radicals. So all the oxidative stress we encounter and the, ox- the potential oxidative damage that could take place, these little guys help us combat some of those free radicals. <laughs> um, they maintain glutathione, which is a uh, one of the more important antioxidants. So they keep those levels of glutathione up. They repair damaged proteins, which when it comes to muscle breakdown and, and, and muscle protein synthesis versus degradation, these help us on the synthesis mm-hmm. side, or the, more accurately, they help us on the degradation side. They prevent the degrading of muscle tissue. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it raises our level of heat shock proteins, our basal rate of heat shock proteins up. So, so before we even, we just have a higher level of heat shock proteins, which means we can do more in a hot environment or we can elevate our core temperature 
our core temperature may not elevate as high as it used to. So mm -hmm. we basically adjust because yeah. there are more heat shock proteins in play. We can actually do more work before we start to overheat, before we start to reach an internal body temperature that's actually counterproductive to performance. So we make more of them and they work better. You got it. Nice. <laughs> should nice. just let you take that one. Um, <laughs> and it, awesome. it, it cool. improves gut integrity. So like mm. I was saying earlier, our gut permeability suffers drastically. Hmm. I mean, all the, shovel, the sugar we're pushing through the system for one thing, the internal temperature for another, just the strain. I mean, the, the, the strain of exercise itself. Mm -hmm. our, our gut is, is a pretty delicate little guy. So these heat shock proteins reinforce its, uh, its uh, integrity. <laughs> so that even in... Uh, demanding training circumstances and hot circumstances, we don't get the same level of uh, gastric distress because our guts, it's, it's uh, supported. Yeah. Yeah. So if you were to do like sauna training, uh, really quick, Chad, like what would be like a typical protocol that people would use? Yeah, they're, they're all And this over is the like place. post ride, post race sort of a thing, yes. but it doesn't, it does it have to be post ride or can it be? It doesn't have to be post ride. The benefit of doing it post ride is that your core temperature is already elevated and you're kind of riding those coattails. So you're cool. already up there. You don't have to sit in a sauna for the first 10 to 15 minutes to elevate core temperature. Rather, you're already there. So as soon as you get into it, um, all 30 of those minutes, should it be a 30 minute protocol or a 30 minute uh, sit, mm -hmm. uh, you're, you're getting the full 30 minutes of it. You're already there. Whereas if you just hop in, you know, in a normal body temperature state, probably take a little while to reach gotcha. uh, a higher core temperature to where all these, uh, occurrences start to manifest. And but the, the, the protocol hot. itself, yeah, yeah, yeah. and that, it, all this varies. I mean, whether you do it, um, they have protocols where they got had people do 170 degrees Fahrenheit oh. for an hour, two times a day for 14 days. Those that was poor the, people. That, that's the extreme end of things. That They're very so extreme. Hot. I can't find anything that's any harsher than that. Oh my god! And then gosh. they have things that are just 30 minutes every third day for three weeks leading up to an event. And so, that's so like 106, right? Down. Exactly. That one? Yeah, 106 so, Fahrenheit. So 41 C. Exactly. Yeah. So you can make it really tolerable. You can make it really miserable. Um, what we're typically, what we're after really is, is improvements in, in plasma volume so that we cool better, but there are a lot of side effects or, uh, um, like other things happening. Concurrent events. Right, yeah. yeah. Things that, that, that happen in addition that are, are super important and super mm. beneficial to both performance and health for that matter. Yeah. Not just plasma volume. That yeah. people are going and the other for. one is, is growth hormone. I mean, heat stress causes a massive induction. So it, it induces mm -hmm. the synthesis of, of growth hormone due to IGF one and a bunch of things that I was going to go into. And then I started realizing this too is a good topic for a deep dive. So I'll save a lot of those details for then. Cool. Uh, one, one thing that other people, if you don't have access to something like a sauna, they've also said that a hot bath, if you keep your hands and feet submerged, I've seen in a study, yeah. anything they, that bumps up your core temperature, you know, because the vent so much through the hands and feet that if you keep them in there, that's mm -hmm. another way. Mm -hmm. And you can notice that too. If you take like a really hot bath and you keep your hands and feet and you'll start sweating uh, mm -hmm. quite a lot. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's just how it works. Yep. So, and then just a couple of words of caution that I feel am, uh, important to convey is that yes. do can, do recognize that heat straining is another form of stress. Mm -hmm. So if you got all your life stressors and then you have all this training stress and, and, and you're already kind of <laughs> walking that line, I need more stress. Yeah, <laughs> This, this is another form of stress. Yeah. And as I mentioned earlier, so is sitting through a meeting, pouring buckets of sweat while all your coworkers yeah, and worried about it on the drive to work that you're already sweaty. Yeah. Yes. I feel yeah, like so, so it's possible to, to, mm -hmm. too much of a good thing. Let's put it that simply. You, you yep. can, uh, there is a point where you start to exceed the benefit. 
I see a lot of people right now, uh, sauna training, heat training of some degree. It's kind of like a, it's a mini gold rush right now. A lot of people are rushing to it. Piling that on. And, and while it can be good, like you said, if you're, if the, like, let's just say your life is not stressful. So it's, this is entirely fake. No life stress. (laughs) Zero, zero life stress. You're a pro athlete and you don't care about anything outside of your sport. Yeah. So let's say you have that, but then your training is pushing you to your limits. If you add this on, it's going to make it tougher for you to recover. That's just yeah, what, it that's, depends on how, it. like I said, how delicately, how delicate that balance is at the time. Mm-hmm. If you are just right on the edge of pushing into, you know, non-productive or, uh, yeah, uh, non-adaptive overreaching man, I can't yeah, even yeah. get the term right. We just covered this for an hour a couple weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, too much information in my brain. Non-functional overreaching. Non-functional, that's, that's the term. Yeah, yep. that's it. Yeah. It, so if you, if you recognize you're right on, right on the edge there, this is another form of stress and it may not seem like it cause all you do is sit in a hot room, but it's taken a pretty hefty physiologic toll. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And another thing to be said with that, like we talked about in some cases, people were basically cooked like, you know, cooked like meat in the, in the oven there at 160 or whatever, mm-hmm. but it's really, you're going for a stimulus, which basically just means that your body needs to be exposed to something that is above what it currently handles. Yeah, exactly. So you don't have to start out going crazy and you don't have to start out also with a lot of time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Dial the temperature down, dial the time down, yeah. and slowly work your way into You're this. You're looking for the minimum necessary to actually provide that stimulus. Yes. No, no sense in overdoing it. And, and it's really easy to overdo it in, in cases like this because you can do it every day. I mean, if you have a sauna, and we have one here now, and I have yep. one at home, I could be in there every day. But I did, in preparation for Italy, because I knew it was going to be hot, and I knew there were going to be long days in the saddle, I spent every day in the sauna. By the end of it, yeah, I, I, I was sweating really quickly and I, I was doing well at higher temperatures, but man, I felt terrible. And I know that wasn't <laughs> yeah. just the sauna, but the sauna didn't help. Yeah. yeah. Not, not that excess. Stack things on top, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Uh, let's go into average roadies question. I'm not calling you that you called yourself that just so that you know, <laughs> you put that down as your name. So, uh, not being degrading in any way. Uh, average roadie says, I just revisited podcast 127 with Lee McCormick. I understand that Lee is an MTB coach and that some of the principles he described like pumping and row and anti row only apply to such disciplines. However, the only, although he, we did talk about how you can pump a turn on a road bike and you do sometimes. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it does happen. Uh, yeah, it, it exists. Yep. It exists. Uh, only on a smaller scale. <laughs> he says, however, the one principle that really stuck with me is hip hinging. So he asks, should we hip hinge as a roadie and what scenarios should we be hip hinging? The one scenario I can think of is turning a bike. Is the, is this the proper way to turn a bike at high speed as well as low speed? So he goes on to explain when hip hinging on a high speed turn, I would lean my body into the turn and effectively stand up with knees bent, stick my butt out the back and keep my chest low, basically hinging at the hips. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can answer that and say, no, yeah, just, <laughs> so, no. just no, so, nope. Uh, he says <laughs> next question <laughs> by, <laughs> by hovering over the saddle while hinged, it lets my saddle float under me and lets a lot of my weight fall onto the outside pedal. But during a high speed turn, this would cause the bike to lean over more than my body and is this proper technique so there's a lot to unpack here um we're going to get into all of it he's like moto gping it yes yes Mm -hmm. there's a lot of things going on and then i love this point though the you have a keen eye in this case uh, average roadie and a lot of people don't he says i apologize for the confusion but i see descending superstars like alaphilippe sagan and neba lead all descending and taking turns leaning their body equally to their bike angle but I also hear advice where the body must not lean as much as the bike. I've been a long time user of train road and it's better than having a personal coach. Thanks guys. Good nice. to hear. Okay. So 
mountain bikes and road bikes operate in many cases on the same principles. However, execution does differ. I think it's fair to say that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, not across the board. There are a lot of similarities, but <laughs> yeah, it does differ. And I think the big, and let's go into why it differs before we actually go into what you would want to do. I mean, the difference is when you think about it, a contact patch. Yeah. It almost one. all bases upon contact patch, right? Yeah. More and or traction. Less. Yeah. And traction. Mm-hmm. If you think about it, like, uh, you know, on a mountain bike, you have a broader contact patch. Mm-hmm. And what the contact patch is, is imagine that your tires were covered in ink and you had white paper and you basically took your bike and you just pushed it down with your body weight onto the ground and then lifted it up. Mm-hmm. The contact patch would be the ink blots that are left on the paper from, mm-hmm. from your bike. So the bigger contact patch, you have more surface area on the ground, you have more traction, but the reason that's important important on mountain biking is because the surface is variable and traction mm-hmm. is not consistent, mm-hmm. right? You also have kind of a evolving contact patch with the mountain bike, with the outer knobs of the tire too, uh-huh. to come into contact at different severities mm-hmm. of turns. Yeah. And tire engineers designed those tires to, mm-hmm. with that very thing in mind, yeah. right? Not so with the road tire. No. Yeah. 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 <laughs> no, no corner knobs <laughs> on the road tire. Nope. You do not want those uh, yeah. uh, with the, and that's why a road tire is smooth, right? Because you want to have as much surface area as possible because you have a relatively small or limited constrained contact patch with the smaller wheels. Mm-hmm. But the good thing about a road bike is you have really good traction compared to dirt, right? In the sense that the surface surface that you're on is not shifting around underneath you, not changing. Yeah, predictable. Yeah, unless yeah, 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 almost the, all the time. That's it, right? Yeah. Unless you hit a really greasy surface that's got oil on it, um, extra, gravel, dirt, yeah, paint, uh, cracks, cracks, that sort of a thing, yeah. Um, yeah. anything like that. Then of course it starts to change things a bit, uh, and and you'll notice that like new tires or like like a, a, a new tire, if you were to put it down on the ground, I, I uh, it'd be tough to measure this, but I guarantee you that it would conform better. The rubber would be more supple. Mm-hmm. It would actually yeah, right. apply a better contact patch to the ground than something that would be an old tire, mm-hmm. whether it's a road or mountain bike tire. Mm-hmm. So yes. now look at MotoGP. So this is uh, super bike racing, right? The motors, in other words. Yeah. Uh, you'll see these guys hanging off the inside of their bike. And then if you look at motocross or mountain biking, you'll see them on the outside of their bike. Basically their bike will be leaned and their body will be upright, mm-hmm. just like a skier, right? Your mm-hmm. legs lean, but your upper body stays more or less upright. Right. And MotoGP is the opposite. And I think a lot of people think, well, I'm riding a bicycle on the street. It's kind of like a motorcycle because it has two wheels. So I need to lean Mm -hmm. and no, it is a very bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to lean to the inside of your bike. Yeah. And the the reason, the only reason they're doing that on MotoGP is because they have a huge contact patch. They have unlimited traction, more or less. Basically, right? A huge, relatively speaking, Mm -hmm. unlimited. Mm -hmm. And so they have a huge contact patch Hmm. and then they have a motorcycle with suspension. Yeah. So they know that if they get off to the inside, they can actually cause those tires to drift, but it's not like a huge noticeable drift. They can cause those tires to drift. The geometry of the bike is designed for that and they have suspension. So they know that when they're hanging to the inside like that, they can compress the suspension more. It will load properly, change the geometry of the bike and hook a turn. Yeah. Turn, turn a tighter turn than their bike would normally be able to. Exactly right. Yes. Mm-hmm. But we don't do that on a road bike. And almost <laughs> no, none don't. of those things that we just said apply to a road bike. No, yes. no GP parallels to be drawn. <laughs> yes. Here. Yes. Yes. Exactly right. Line choice is the only thing yeah. that you yes. can grab. There are some, yes. there are some yep. parallels, yep. but this is not one of them. Yeah. And that's why you'll see such great riders like 
like Sagan, Nibali, Alaphilippe, those guys, and they're descending, they are not leaning to the inside. In fact, you'll even see a lot of them, uh, a lot of people also lean their inside knee. And I understand that that helps a lot of people kind of initiate the turn and roll their hips toward the exit of the turn. Mm -hmm. Yeah, open uh, open the hips to where they want to go. Yep. Right. Um, the only thing is usually when that happens, you'll see a overcorrection with the person's upper body. So because they lean their knee in, that's putting weight to the inside of their bike mm -hmm. and subconsciously their body will lean away from the angle of the turn a bit because they're trying to counter for that. Hmm. And that does upset your bike's handling so that it basically, if you hit a bump in that case, your weight isn't squarely over the bike as it should be. You're not as stably planted. And that's yeah. when you start to get bounced around a whole lot more. Yeah. So, um, really it's your bike and your body on a road bike. They're going to match the same angle. It's not like mountain biking at all. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's, that's, that's super common. And he talked about hovering. We shouldn't like, like Chad, I've noticed that you're really good at hovering on a road bike going through stuff. How mm -hmm. would you describe it? Like full on separation? No, like this guy's not. talking no, about, I'm barely unweighting my, my pelvis. So, so that I'm still fully in contact with the saddle. I'm just not as heavy on it as I'd normally be. Mm -hmm. So, and it's just a little bit of shock absorption, really. It's, yeah. It doesn't have to do with turning harder. Yeah. It, it, it enables you to overcome obstacles that come mm -hmm. into your path. It's not, not that you're, not that you're like planning on hitting anything or something like that. Mm -hmm. But if you hit a crack or a rock or a little bit of a slide, mm -hmm. you're unweighted to be prepared. It's yeah. like a safety net. Yeah, it right. introduces a bike body separation that doesn't disrupt everything else about mm -hmm. how yeah. you're mounted on it's the bike. It's not really even a visible one. Mm -hmm. I mean, like I said, you're still fully in contact. And if you lose contact at all, man, your chamois is still in contact. I exactly. Mean, Tissue yeah. is still in contact with yeah. that saddle somehow, yeah. right? It's just not maybe as firmly anchored as in all of your weight is on that saddle of place squarely on it. Mm -hmm. um, so, in, yeah, in terms of hip hinging, though, we still hip hinge. Yeah, for sure. We just don't lift our, our, our legs mm -hmm. up. But definitely when you're turning, if you want your bike to be more confident handling, mm -hmm. the biggest thing you should always think of is chest low, yeah. right? Get your head and chest to the bars. And that's why you see. And that's really what we're after with a hip hinge. I mean, that's, that's it. all we're after. A hundred percent. Reweighting your bike correctly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You don't have to lean further forward. You don't have to do any of that stuff. If you're on the bike and it bike fits you well, then you just drop your chest, right? And mm -hmm. when you drop your chest, the way you do it is by hinging at your hips, just not by rounding that, out your back. Lowering that center of gravity. Yeah. And that's why, like, if you look at pictures of USA crits racers, like your guys, like team cliff bar, everything else, you'll see when they're going into turns and they're really pushing, like if they're on a breakaway or they're initiating something, they're on an attack, you'll see that chest and the, that head is low to the bars. Low. Very and, low. And that's the same way the grand tour descenders look like mm -hmm. into a corner. They are low. And it's because your, your center of gravity drops. You're in more control of your bike. Everything's spread a little more evenly and yeah. Uh, you can just, like you said, engage a turn correctly in that position. Yep. Yeah. Hopefully that, that helps <laughs> along the side of technique. We should mention that we have a YouTube video we just Ooh, posted last yeah. night. Uh, and I, I feel like we learned, so we learned a ton throughout the process. It was crazy. We basically said like, uh, Pete was like, yeah, I know how to sprint and I can sprint really well. And it was like, I can't sprint well. And we were like, well, we don't really know what to tell you. <laughs> we're like, yeah, so, do, do more of this. Nate. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and do less of that. Yeah. Um, but then we took out, we, we got some slow motion footage of Nate and Pete sprinting. We put the footage side by side, and then we even have some uh, producer Tucker Bravo. Uh, yeah, well, that looks amazing. Uh, putting things together and kind of like creating some visual guides to help you understand some key points that we noticed where Nate was not uh, executing us or the reason why Nate's watts weren't higher in a sprint. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's super impressive. Like you'll notice, and I won't give the whole thing away. You should go to YouTube and check it out. Um, so it's, 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 it's sprinting 
one, uh, be an explosive sprinter. It's pretty cool stuff. So, uh, or how to be explosive, I should say. Yeah. So if you look it up there, you can also go to the forum and we'll pause, toss it in on this episode so you can see it there. But one of the things that we noticed was uh, just for like a teaser of sorts, Nate didn't have even tension throughout his body. Mm -hmm. So as a result, the torque would get lost that he was trying to create from his hands and his shoulders of a lot of tension. Mm -hmm. Since he didn't have even tension through his trunk, it would get lost and it wouldn't go into the pedals. And you can see exactly where it gets lost. His mm -hmm. hips are rocking like crazy, whereas mm -hmm. yours are perfectly stable. His hands are pulling up, not back. I mean, there's, there's mm -hmm. just some, some easy gets. And I say, man, you put yourself behind a video camera or on the other side of a video camera mm -hmm. and you can learn a lot. Oh yeah, mm -hmm. we should all do it if we can ask. And our iPhones can do amazing slow-mo. Uh, yeah. So we could even use an iPhone mm -hmm. uh, or whatever Android phone. You know, phones <laughs> yeah, do slow-mo now. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so you can, and I think that we can learn a ton from it. So yeah, and looking cool at yourself, uh, you you can start picking the pieces that are wrong. You mm -hmm. know, it's pretty apparent in slow motion what you're not doing correctly. Mm -hmm. yes. And uh, a hip hinging does play into the video. Oh yeah, a ton. Sure. So you'll see that too. Um, so a, yeah, it's check a that one out. Tremendous resource. I mean, they have the I think the app's called Coach's Eye. Mm -hmm. We use that for Olympic lifting mm -hmm. because yeah. you can have a coach try to tell you ten different things, and if you, I mean, once you see it then everything resonates so much more clearly. Mm -hmm. yeah. But when you're not, you're just not picking something up. No, no verbal cues are getting you there. Five seconds of video can, can be yep. all the difference. My dad always had a video camera. He's a ski instructor and ski yeah. coach and everything else. Yeah. So he always had a video camera whenever we did any sort of sport, <laughs> whether it was dance for my sister or anything. And I remember when he filmed me and I was racing motocross back in the day, I remember, I think I told him on the first one, it's not me. You're not filming me. I'm going so fast. You don't understand. <laughs> Cause I looked at it and I was like, that person's hardly moving. Yeah. <laughs> in, in other words, it's a shock when we see a video of ourselves, mm -hmm. but we should totally do it. It's really helpful. Yeah. Uh, worthwhile. We, we also on our YouTube channel have another video. You should, guys should check it out and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, it's, uh, another race analysis video where Nate actually did a darn good job of racing. Mm -hmm. he's, he's taking all the cues we've been giving him it's and so he, much better now he executed them in this yeah. case. Uh, and the video is on how to thin the field and win. So a lot of the times you just have a ton of racers. And this is basically how to systematically work your way through all of those racers to better Whittle your chances. Yep. Yep. He does a great job of it. And Pete, you did some great takeaways. Yeah. On, I was so. going to say the, unfortunately the title gives it away, but he does win. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> he does. <laughs> Let's go to Andy's question. Uh, he says, hello chaps, splendid podcast. I'm going to guess that this guy's from the UK, <laughs> not from Texas. Probably <laughs> says I have a particular problem with my calf muscles. It seems to affect quite a few of us cyclists, but there does not seem to be much consensus on how to resolve. And I think it's one of the few topics that you may not have covered. Basically when racing, there seems to be a lot more standing sprinting than we ever train for. That's actually a really good point, mm -hmm. right? When we race, we end up, you know, we, we throw out all sort of intention of how we want to hold ourselves or mm -hmm. how we want to execute. And we just chase, right? Yeah. yeah. Accelerations yeah. are way different in a race than they are in regular life. I exactly. think is what it comes <laughs> right. down to. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Right. Yep. We just turn into the tiny little yeah. dog in a ball. <laughs> yeah. We're just chasing that thing. <laughs> So for example, closing a break, getting on a wheel, hitting a punchy climb, all require fast, punchy standing efforts. Over time, this seems to cause quite a lot of calf fatigue for me, sometimes resulting in cramps and general discomfort. I'm pretty sure given years of experience that this is not due to hydration and nutrition. Is it normal that the calves should, and he says in quotes, go first in terms of the muscle group to tire out? He says, could it be my age? And is the standing exertion likely to be the reason or is it general fatigue? If so, do you have a cunning plan? <laughs> uh, and he mentions an FTP of 305, 78 kilograms, age 52, and a master's racer. So uh, Andy's question here, 
now it, he brings up a good point that, you know, many times we'll be standing more than we would or, you know, those sort of hard efforts. Yeah. But that, I guess that isn't really necessary though, right? Yeah. First off, you don't always need to stand. And mm-hmm. I mean, some, some efforts absolutely require it, but a lot more or a lot less than people think a lot fewer. Mm-hmm. I mean, first off, we'll, we'll talk anticipation in a minute by anticipating you can circumvent the need to stand in, in so many cases. Oh yeah. Um, and then you can also cultivate a pretty punchy jump from the saddle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, just go do a round of microbursts. I mean, every time you do a round of microbursts and especially as the power comes up, you're getting just a little bit better at that very thing. Mm-hmm. Yep. I mean, there are all the situations he describes here um, where are they accelerating up a punchy climb? Yep. Yeah. He says, uh, getting on a wheel, hitting a punchy climb, yep. ch- closing a break. Yep. They all require those fast. They don't, they don't require it. I mean, mm-hmm. that's, that's what you're relying on and you're paying the price for it. And, and like I said, some cases, maybe they actually do require it, but I, all of those, I know mm-hmm. Pete can, I know I can, I know Jonathan can, we can cover all of those seated mm-hmm. yep. in so many cases. And man, it's so, so two points on that. It's really intimidating if you're feeling wrecked and there's a person in front of you and they close down the move without getting out of the saddle. Yeah. You're like, he's not even phased. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. like, oh man, I'm in trouble. Right. Yeah. Uh, the other side of it too is, is, is when you are able to close things down like that, you don't signal other people. Cause many times that initial surge may be the mark of something a little bit bigger, more, maybe a decisive move. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that you were able to stay with it, you know, might mean that you make it into the break or you don't. And when you stand up, you signal to everybody, get ready to push hard. Yeah, I'm going, mm-hmm. we're going yeah. right. And, and it's, and it basically causes a reaction sitting, you know, in most cases, oh, yeah. it's yeah. just more work for your body. I, it's a squat. Right. Yeah. I mean, you're basically like lifting yourself up off the, off the pedals and then you're pedaling really hard. Then you're yeah. sitting back down. There's energy. There's, there's a lot of energy. Work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's a, one of the jokes is if you see me standing up in a race, I'm totally screwed. Like I'm about to get dropped. It's yeah. not, I'm, I need everything I can possibly get. Um, right. But if I'm staying seated, I'm still being efficient doing what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'll be able to hang. It's like when you see guys creep forward on the saddle mm-hmm. and they get to a point where there's just uh-huh. no they're sitting on Their no spines are so impossibly curved yeah. and they're just <laughs> hanging in. There. We've yep. all been there. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep, that happens for sure. Some uh, something else that with this too that I think of is when people stand like and, and just going back to like the the squat thing. Imagine being on the rivet in a race, then having somebody come up next to you and be like, "Okay, please do a squat." Like you would say, "No, get out of here." Yeah. But when something goes up the road, we go, "I need to stand up out of the saddle and surge." So that's why it's so important for us to think of efficiency and, and to recruit mm-hmm. the sort of ability to be able to put out whatever power we need to in a more efficient way. And that level of explosivity may not actually be required in a lot of cases. I mean, if a move mm-hmm. goes and you want to be on it right now, then yeah, you're going to have to jump very hard, very quickly. But if you jumped only half a second slower and two riders got in between you and that mm-hmm. lead rider, that yep. is not the worst thing. And that's a great way to make sure that your sprint at the end isn't going to be very potent. Mm-hmm. If you make sure that every time anything happens, oh, yeah. you snap onto it as hard as you can. And yeah. Those particular energy resources replenish if given the opportunity, but chances are, if you're doing that a lot and mm-hmm. still maintaining a high level of work, they're just going down, down, down. So mm-hmm. that when you really need them, they're not going to be there. And, and different racers have different amount of that energy, right? Some racers can only cover one or two things That's and some thing. racers can cover a lot of things by being snappy. It's yeah. all about I'm what thinking some guys who intentionally mm-hmm. get out of the saddle for moves like this simply because they're practicing something they're very good at or mm-hmm. relying something that, that, on something. 
right? Yeah, or Jose is another good one. Yeah, keeps yeah. coming to my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they stand at, at the ready because right? it works for them. They've yeah. got that particular muscle predisposition. They're really good at that sort of thing, so yeah. they employ it. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. not to don't let that give you that idea. That's the only way to do it. And I'd argue that even, it will work for you. I'd argue that they could be even better, uh, more efficient if they found a way different probably, way to do it. Probably, probably. You know? I mean, so, it, it, lighter riders, I get it. They need to be able to generate a lot of force, and it's hard to generate a lot of force when you're mm-hmm. a smaller rider. So yep. getting out of the saddle, in a lot of cases, could be absolutely necessary. A good, a good example is the people who stand up and cover things are usually the first people to cover things. The people who seated <laughs> are better at following wheels uh, and taking yeah. the less abs- the less of the surge out of that. Yep. Absolutely true in my experience. That's yeah. a really good point. So yeah. if and I never want to follow someone who's standing up. Like that's the worst way for me to go <laughs> oh, across exactly. with something. Yeah, I would wait, you up so fast. Yeah, I would wait. It's worse for me to follow someone who's standing and sprinting than for me to do it on my own in the wind at my pace. Mm-hmm. Like it might take twice as long, but I'll feel way better off. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So. Great point. Now his calves, if they are getting tired. The one, I've never mm-hmm. had my calves tire out before. I've heard of mountain bikers experiencing this. Yeah. Um, but as Lee talked about last time, if your calves are getting tired or your quads are getting tired, that sort of thing, it's position related. It's position related. And uh, when I think of any sort of muscle group in the legs getting tired before another, when we're talking about standing and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. I see people stand in very different places on their bike. Oh, yeah. And if you follow like the sweet spot base plans and the workout techs that you have, it was transformational the first time I did any one of those workouts because mm-hmm you were talking about where I should be standing. And it's the same point that you make in the sprint video of, you know, where your body is fore and aft in relation to the bike really changes not only your body's ability to create force, yeah. but also where the fatigue's going. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned in a sprint, for example, that the nose of the saddle should just barely be brushing the back of your hamstrings, yeah, right? Crazy. The back of your legs. And a lot of people, the majority of people that I see when they stand, they go hips to the bars. They go really far forward. Yeah, which puts them super tall. I mean, yep. there, there are the rare instances like the Caleb Ewans of the world who can get way the far, way far away from the saddle and push their bodies over the front wheel. Yeah. Something yeah. I absolutely do not recommend. <laughs> yes, nobody should try that. Yeah, but yeah. That, that's not most of us. Like think yeah. of Contador too. If you look at Contador, a lot of the times he was a hips forward sort of a guy. Mm-hmm. I know people break rules, but for the majority of us, if you are leaning I, and I, I actually, it was funny when we were doing this, the meeting for this, I stood up and started moving around, <laughs> trying to find your calves, <laughs> trying to find my calves and where I was triggering them. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, if I have my hips pretty darn forward and my body is, if my hips are forward, i kind of have my body in a straight line. There's not a lot of hip hinge going on. Mm-hmm. It did start to light up my calves more than it lit up anything else. Yeah. Um, so that could be the option. And like we said, the saddles in a sprint should be just brushing your legs. If you're standing and climbing, you might be slightly further. You know, you'll be a bit more further forward. You won't have quite as deep of a hip hinge. But we're talking like an inch different. It's you know, not it's, a big difference. Yeah, the window of, of efficiency for standing is small. Mm. Yes. Um, and so, like, I, I keep thinking of the people you see sprinting and their heads are like six inches in front of their garments. Or yes. if they have GoPros on the bike, you can see their head like <laughs> their wagging head back. Wagging, yeah. yeah. I, that's a hard way to do things, man. Yes, it is. <laughs> it's very hard. You're pulling power so far away from the cranks in that case. Yeah. Pulling, pulling yeah. your body so far away. Yeah, and, and when you don't hinge at the hips, you remove that lever and the, the most powerful part of your body, in many mm-hmm. cases, the hips, to be able to transfer a lot of tension and torque and turn power into your pedals. And you can yeah. also look at your the, the degree of toe point. You know, Maybe mm-hmm. you're a rider who rides with very high heels, uh-huh. and that, that will absolutely lend to it, especially if, for whatever reason, you default to that after mm-hmm. a period. Maybe you don't ride like that normally, but as you start to fatigue, heels start to come up. Yep. Uh, might be something there. Final reason why leaning forward isn't a great idea, traction. 
Yeah. yeah. And a lot of people always talk about back wheel hop when they get out of the saddle when they're sprinting. Watch Caleb or when they're who climbing. we were just talking about sprint on cobbles. Yeah. Where traction comes it's at a premium. A lot of, uh... Yes. <laughs> yeah. He's probably working so hard to be able to not just have his back end hop whenever it finds any bump. That's a big, it's you know, a potentially it's, big power loss and on an un, uneven exactly. road for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely different. Um, uh, we're going, yeah, Pete. I would say one more thing. Yeah. Practice the, we, we had this challenge last winter. I want to do a better job this year, but it's like seated five second power, mm. you know, just knowing that your body is capable of, I don't, I won't throw numbers out a lot of Watts, you know, mm -hmm. two, two and a half times your threshold for five seconds seated mm -hmm. like that, that gives you the confidence that you can cover things while staying seated. Yes. And that will change the way you look at things that are coming. Like I love five or 10 second long Hills that I can stay seated yeah. on. No, um, they can be 10, you know, 15%. It doesn't matter. I will stay seated because the second I get out of the saddle, I'm going to go backwards. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yep. so just, uh, teach your body like this winter is a great great chance like add some five ten seconds mm -hmm. seated high power efforts to the end of one ride a week do sweet spot base and they'll be added for you Ooh. there we go <laughs> that's exactly it we're gonna go into a question that i actually ended up reaching out to keegan swenson's father for so i'm sure mm -hmm. uh, this seems a bit strange but before we get into that congratulations to keegan swenson for winning breck epic uh, once again we are sponsors of the stands pivot team they are cleaning up this that year. That boy's on fire. That whole team is on fire. Yes. Uh, so congrats. Uh, he ended up getting five out of six stage wins and winning not bad. with a very healthy margin. <laughs> so way to go. And good luck at world championships. Yeah. Exciting times for us here in the United States because they have the team relay. And I know people don't really care about the team relay quite as much. But when you think about the U.S. team, you have to have an elite male, elite female, a U23 female and U23 male, a junior male. And then I don't know if you need to have a junior female, hmm. but basically elite U23 junior, both, you know, the, uh, both genders Genders. across the board. We have Keegan Swenson. We have Kate Courtney for the elites for U23. We have Chris Blevins, extremely strong, extremely fast. And, uh, then I think that we'll have Haley, Haley Batten, Batten, I think is U23 super fast. Mm -hmm. Then men's juniors. We have Riley Almos, who is darn near as fast as the best elite guys. He's like not far off of like, you know, Keegan, Russell, Finster, while their level. Mm -hmm. Awesome. And he's a junior. And then on the female side, I think that we have another junior, but I'm not sure if they have a, a female junior. Anyways, we might actually be able to challenge the Swiss and the French on this one. So that's, it's exciting. That's I'm looking forward to it. Never happened before. I don't think so. So I could be wrong, but uh, it's exciting nonetheless. And uh, it's something to tune into and it'll be next weekend. So uh, Wednesday is the team relay. And then I think that the XC races may be on Friday or Saturday of next week. Cool. So up in Mont Saint and Quebec. All right. Miguel's question. He says, first of all, five stars for the podcast and training plans. I started at around 240 Watts for my FTP and I'm now around 270 to 290. Uh, he says, uh, depending on, on when you've measured it. So <laughs> <laughs> he says, even starting racing, uh, and he says he's even started racing, which is cool. But he says, here's my question. I already have my first crash. How do you treat the road? Well, welcome to the club. Yeah, yeah, first of all, uh, how do you treat road rash correctly? You read a lot of stuff online, but nothing is really conclusive. So I went to, uh, so before you get in, yeah, in, in depth, I'll just get out of the way what we've done in years past. And I'm guessing yeah. Pete, you've probably had the same mm -hmm. approach, mm -hmm. steel wool, tegaderm mesh netting. Yeah. It's that simple. And it doesn't matter where I go. I've had, uh, on the, the medic tent on the side of the course, steel wool, 
go to the emergency room, steel wool. So what do I start packing and do it to myself? Steel wool. It is a miserable undertaking, but when you talk about getting a wound clean and, and fishing yeah. out all the debris that comes when your skin interacts with asphalt, yeah. if you're doing it yourself, aggressive. steel wool is pretty optimal because <clears throat> it takes less time. <laughs> it's you, a miserable experience. You do, and you probably take off a little extra at the same time. If but, at all possible. I mean, it, it, if you could jump back in the race, this isn't going to happen, but if you're done or it's toward the end of the race, or you are just going to bag it, yeah. do it right then and there. So well, I'm going to, you're still not quite feeling I'm going to counter the steer wool, steer <laughs> wool do. and disagree. Yeah, please do. So, and we'll all breathe, breathe a collective sigh of relief here because we don't have to do that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, uh, Keegan just went through a lot of this. This is why I reached out to him and his mm -hmm. dad is a doctor. So I okay. figured I'd reach out to him. He deals with ER patients, deals with a ton of different stuff. And I want him in so, my ER. I know, right? It'd be great. Mm -hmm. Um, step one, clean it thoroughly. This makes sense. So here's how you do want to go about it. Uh, chlorhexidine is the cleaner that you want to get. You can get that in HybaCleanse. It's a soap that you can get. Mm. Um, and that soap, actually, we have it here in the Trainer Road offices in the in the shower that we have here. Mm. So then uh, we actually got it because it's proven to be helpful against infections like saddle sores, that sort of stuff. So, uh, but or chlorhexidine is the main thing that you want to go for. Okay. There are pet shampoos with it and pet like washes and it's fine where, you know, you can use that on yourself too. Um, <laughs> the main thing you want is chlorhexidine. So that's a very good disinfectant. It's a very good, um, cleaner to use. It's also not going to be overly harsh. So then in terms of scrubbing, uh, use soft brushes is what Jordan said. So he said soft toothbrush style bristles or a brand new loofah. And he says, and then follow up with sponges. Now he said that it's going to take some time and you're really going to need to get in there. And he said, but when you use something that's too abrasive, he says that it just prolongs the healing period too long. That and he said that perfect sense. Yeah. And he said it's that trauma on trauma. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, we feel like we're doing something productive because <laughs> we're really scrubbing and getting <laughs> it, rid it of skin hurts real bad. Yeah. But he said like a soft toothbrush, you know, how they have like stiff, medium, hard bristles mm -hmm. usually or soft. soft. Yeah, okay. that's it. Yeah. Right. Said soft ones or a loofah. He just said, make sure it is brand new. So don't use anything used and don't, like don't let, use my own toothbrush. <laughs> yes. Okay. Don't use your dog's toothbrush. <laughs> also a bad idea. Um, don't let anybody else touch the wound period. He okay. said, he said, your body's fine with all of your own bacteria your on own there. Microbes, totally. Yeah. Okay. Just don't introduce anybody else's. So if somebody's helping you with a wound, give them gloves, don't let them touch it. Right. And <laughs> it, don't use somebody else's loofah. Don't use somebody else's rag. Don't do that sort of a thing. Use new stuff. Uh, it says scrub away until all the debris is gone. Use twe tweezers if needed. And he said, if something is really embedded and you can't get it out and it's not something like for like, it's a, it's a small rock, something like that. He says, it's not the end of the world and it will work its way out quickly is what he that said. That's true. So he said, in some cases they make the choice to, you know, leave things in. It's going to come to the surface soon enough. Step two is dressing the wound. So he says, apply neosporin, triple antibiotic or Vaseline even. Uh, really, he says one of the main things that you want to do is yes, you want it to be moist. antibiotic, but you have to keep it moist. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Then Tegaderm is what you want to use first. And it's actually kind of like a Teflon-y, Gore-Tex-y material that basically has an absorbent, a bunch of absorbent layers in between. Mm -hmm. It's almost like shiny and slippery mm -hmm. on the outside. And you basically put that onto the wound and then it's got everything to absorb because it will uh, end up oozing quite a lot, especially mm -hmm. when it's fresh. So, um, it basically, the Tegaderm is there to shield it and absorb everything else. It's not there to do anything crazy differently. And the reason Tegaderm is so good is because it is, like you said, Chad, it's breathable. Um, and you have to change them out early and often. He said every eight hours or so you need to change out your bandages. Mm -hmm. That's three times That's a day. That's a big yep. get too. 
Yes. It's so easy to just leave it on and forget about it till the next day. And 24 hours is way too long between dressing changes. Yes. Then he said after about 48 hours or so, and the oozing has started to reduce and you don't need as much absorption from that Tegaderm, you can switch over to Duoderm. Hmm. Now, Duoderm actually is a brand that makes Band-Aids. That's not what you want. You want these Duoderm patches that are actually clear Mm -hmm. and they're really big and they're kind of like thick gel. And you put those over the wounds after the first 48 hours or so, once it stopped oozing, uh, he says it still breathes. Um, but he says it does a better job of keeping in moisture and it does a better job of not taking off what's trying to heal and Mm. everything else Mm. that's coming out. Uh, bird netting is the best way to fix the bandage in place. Like you said, Chad, uh, with the mesh, that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. Sometimes that can be hard to find. So he had a pro tip. It is hard to find. He said, you can go to any store, Walmart, you know, anything like that. And you can get nylons and then cut the ends off the nylons, then slip the nylons over that very thing. Move too. And he said, it'll keep it in place and it'll breathe extremely well. Hmm. Um, so that's a, a good option that you can have. Compression, um, wound dressings, all yeah. And then for redressing it, if there's excess, I asked him, is it okay to like, should you be cleaning it off? That sort of a thing. And mm-hmm. he said, if there's excess discharge and oozing, then yeah, you want to clean it off. Mm-hmm. But in most cases, he said with the, with the tegaderm, it's going to be picking that up and absorbing it anyway. And, and making sure that you don't have to worry about that. Then he said, if you have what they call escar, basically it's dead skin. It might turn like a darker color. It might turn like a yellow color, something like that. Mm-hmm. That's the sort of skin that's just not going to be doing anything productive anymore. And it happens if it dries out as well. But if you have that sort of stuff, don't worry about it coming off when you peel the bandage off. In other words, if you reopen things, that's okay. It's painful and it's uncomfortable, Mm -hmm. but if you're changing it out every eight hours, chances are, it's not going to get to the point where it's really dry Mm -hmm. and you're ripping it off. This makes me never want to ride bikes. (laughs) (laughs) Just don't crash. (laughs) Yes. And then he says for five days to a week, keep it covered and out of the sun and keep it moist. Uh, last two things, things to watch for. He says, watch for allergies to adhesives and some Teflon coated materials. Uh, for example, he was mentioning that his wife can't use normal band-aids. Uh, when she puts them on her skin gets really irritated, uh, right where the adhesive of the bandaid is. Right. And he said that can be common. Also Teflon coated materials can be an irritant to people. And in that case, you won't, wouldn't want to use Tegaderm and you'd want to switch to a traditional mesh bandage of some sort. Gotcha. And then he also said, watch for significant redness, puffiness, or heat. And in that case, you definitely need some antibiotics. So that's basically how to treat it. Sleeping is another matter. And that's uh, choose your own adventure. And that's a wild ride. (laughs) So (laughs) I've woken up stuck to sheets before. Yeah. (laughs) It's a terrible Change the sheets into sheets you don't like as much. Oh, that's a good good point. That's a good Uh, tip. And if you're at someone else's house. (laughs) Um, Apologize. Uh, yeah, get, go buy them a new set of sheets. <laughs> yes, you're going to need to. Uh, honestly, I have slept with rubber sheets before um, with that. Um, so we basically have like a, a, not really a rubber sheet, I guess. We just put down like a large plastic thing on a couch. Um, and mm-hmm. I ended up sleeping on that because I was worried I was going to ooze through everything. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you got to do what you got to do. Yeah. Okay, let's get into some YouTube questions, some questions that have been submitted live on there. Once again, youtube.com slash trainer road. That's where you can go and join us live. And we'll answer just a handful of these because we're kind of long this week. Uh, So we'll answer just a handful. Uh, Let's see. So somebody says, my little cave of power also has a fireplace. When training during the winter, this room gets to 80 to 90 degrees Fahrenheit. And I notice my heart rate is higher when training in this situation. Keen observation. Should I relocate my training cave? Uh, if it's coming at the expense of the quality of your workouts, probably. Yeah. 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 Otherwise I wouldn't worry about it, but, uh, yeah, it's just that simple. Yeah. I mean, you get, you have to do more work. Your heart, your, uh, heart is kind of double tasked. It's trying mm-hmm. to feed muscles. It's also trying to offload heat, um, by pushing more blood. 
Yeah, I think that the one thing you could look at is if it's lower in intensity, you might be able to get away with it and it might mm -hmm. be okay. When it gets into higher intensity or like sweet spot efforts that are like sustained, that's when it gets really tough. Yeah, our biggest obstacle, our biggest limiter indoors is cooling. Yep. So, I mean, you're basically working on the opposite yeah, side of if that. You, if you have an option to move it, I would move it. Definitely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Daniel says, will bike commuting three to five times a week, six and a half miles each way. So not a crazy long commute mm -hmm. and doing a four to six hour zone one to zone two ri group ride on Saturdays. That's a. I've never done that group ride that oh, does man. zone one, That's, zone two. No, actually. It's impressive. The, the Sunday ride. Okay. The procrastinating peddlers. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's pretty yeah. mellow. Pretty okay. some, some wise gentlemen, we might call them. Yeah, 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 exactly. Experienced. Yes. Uh, so he says, would commuting and doing that ride affect my ability to follow a trainer road plan? I haven't tried trainer road yet, but I might. Uh, absolutely not. Probably not. No. Yeah, unless you're really yeah. gassing it, in which case... You, mm -hmm. you can probably figure yeah. that out, but th th that's exactly what I'm describing with the reading rides I'm doing right now. I can, mm -hmm. I can do those every day with almost no ill effects at mm -hmm. all. And it's not because I've accustomed myself to a high training load. I mean, I'm coming back from almost nothing right now and, and sprinkling those in is having no ill effects. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've, I've done a lot of my life where I commuted to and from work every day. Mm -hmm. Um, and as long as keep your commute rides laughably easy. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. like that's important. Um, and only do, uh, like that's probably no more than an hour a day. So say 45 minutes, that's about when I lived in Denver, that, that was about my commute. And I, it was actually really nice because it was some added volume. Mm -hmm. The problem is I don't, I would probably the zone one, zone two ride. You can def still definitely do it, but pick and choose. Yeah. If you have yeah. to cut something, just be ready to cut something and know yeah. what that it will be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and I, I think a low volume plan partnered with mm -hmm. that is great. Mm -hmm. um, that's the way to do it, right? You're just gonna be filling in a ton of aerobic volume with it there. <clears throat> uh, okay. Uh, another question. Uh, first off five stars every single time, guys. Thank you. Appreciate nice. that. I just completed Leadville and would like to do a 50 miler here in San Diego at the end of October. I was thinking of doing the cross country Olympic high volume plan. It all depends on the way or the, the course and the way you plan to race the course. That's what we say mm -hmm. with any training plan. Um, you may have, for example, a pan flat, uh, criterium, but you may train with 40 K TT, mm -hmm. right? Because you just plan to race that thing in a breakaway format and steady state. Yeah. Um, whereas on the other side of things with the mountain bike race, uh, cross country Olympic high volume, I would pick that if I was planning on racing it very aggressively. And if I'm racing it aggressively, I should be at the front of that race. If I'm not at the front of the race, I shouldn't be racing aggressively because it'll be over my limits. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and then if the course is extremely undulating, short, repeated, hard hits over and over, if it has sustained climbs, I wouldn't be doing cross country Olympic high volume. I would be doing something that would be more like cross country marathon. If it has sustained mm -hmm. efforts, mm -hmm. I feel like in most cases, a 50 miler would benefit more from the marathon style plan, even possibly something like the rolling road race plan. Um, so depending on, on what you want, really, if you want to prepare for the short surges and be able to punch that sort of a thing, the mountain bike one cross country marathon does a great job for that. Uh, okay. Uh, into another one. Somebody says this one might be a good one for you, Pete. Is there an appreciable difference between using erg mode on amp plus and Bluetooth? Uh, they're mentioning the fact that sometimes they have done those workouts and they've felt different with other platforms. Depends kind of, uh, globally speaking, almost everybody has better experience with Bluetooth. Um, the training experience is basic. It's, it's, it's it, the same. It should be the same, mm -hmm. but dropouts, um, responsiveness, things like that should just be a little bit better on Bluetooth. Mm -hmm. Um, there's a reason we, we kind of merge. If you have both Ant and Bluetooth enabled, we push you to Bluetooth, Bluetooth because it almost always lands in a better scenario for the, for the rider. Mm -hmm. Um, 
try Bluetooth. Uh, I think our the way we the way we interact with devices on Trandy Road is pretty primo currently. Um, yeah. So give it a shot. See what you think. Um, try Bluetooth, and uh, you should not notice anything. It should just magically be wonderful. Yep. Um, Sherry says, if I wanted to add in one of the VO2 max blocks that Coach Chad was talking about in a previous podcast, which basically you can just pull in VO2 max workouts. Uh, you can use the filters to pull those in, that sort of a stuff. Mm-hmm. That just sort make, of thing. Just make them progressive. Yep. Uh, says, would I be better off doing that sort of a thing before or after the base phase? Uh, there's a case for, for both, both situations. I, I think I've I talked in the forum and it still gets uh, bandied about quite a bit how I would do a kind of a pre-training VO2 max block mm-hmm. just to, mm-hmm. just to scrub up a bit of fitness so that I don't go into it feeling kind of uh, low mm-hmm. psychologically. Um, and it doesn't take much. I, I know from experience that I do well with VO2 max work, but I imagine most people do. I, I There might be the rare person or some people out there who don't get as much bang for their buck when it comes to VO2 max work. But in that case, I would probably just assume they're training too much and they're too tired to make, uh, to do the workouts exactly right. I, mm-hmm. I think much like an endurance block, a VO2 max block can almost figure into any scenario. Mm-hmm. So pre-training, post-training, um, personally, I would do it pre-training just to drum up a bit of fitness and then maybe consider repeating it after six weeks, depending on, you know, my training calendar, mm-hmm. just to, to up the ante a bit, go back into it with my newly acquired fitness at a slightly higher effort level, bump that aerobic capacity up a bit further, and then hit my second block of base training. Cool. I, I like that too. I, I agree with you. It's easier for me to wrap my head around getting back into training mm-hmm. with a little VO2, and then it like wakes up the system for real. I mean, there, there's, <clears throat> if you go and throttle yourself with 120% efforts, <laughs> when you have to go do 90% efforts, even if they're very long, they're so much more tolerable. <laughs> so much yes. <laughs> Two questions that we're going to get to. One person says, first of all, they asked, is the hip hinging that we spoke about with Lee, the same as the, as the road bike hinging that we're talking about. The hip hinge is a principle that you want to figure out regardless of that. It's present in deadlifting. It's present in, it's in ski in, racing, ski racing, uh, everything. It was so fun talking about that with Lee is that all of these like concepts that we were talking about are present everywhere in the oh, world yeah. with, with all sports, all yeah. things. Yes. Uh, it's, it's awesome. It was yeah. so fun to talk about. Yeah, yeah. Just rather than have everything at the expense of your quads, try to engage the posterior chain, just yep. the backside of the body, especially your hamstrings and your glutes. Those are big potentially uh, can, can make very big contributions Yes, and, a hip and, hip, and are typically underutilized. A hip hinge with an engaged and strong trunk allows you to do that, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, then r- branching off of that, how do you explain, how do you explain Matthew Vanderpool's descending body position? It seems like he has straight arms and legs during the sense because you're not watching close enough. So there's, that's, well, there's two, twofold, right? Deep and deep and there's a deep hinge. The road, there's, a, there's a high hinge, a high hinge and a deep hinge and a deep hinge. And so, uh, almost, we used Matthew Vanderpool as an example. Mm-hmm. The high hinge is where you can kind of lock your legs and mm-hmm. hinge back and up, and it gives you this imag- real rest period yeah. while you're descending because there's actually nothing being, you're hanging on your skeletal. We're talking about mountain bike. Yeah, mm-hmm. hang, or road bike, I mean, I guess, technically. Yeah, you see it sometimes on that mm-hmm. too, if they're descending yeah, and a person descent. wants to rest. Mm-hmm. Um, you're hanging on your skeletal tissue. Yes. So there's no engaged muscle. Yeah. And so when they're doing those create not super technical descents, um, high hinged, they're actually resting going mm-hmm. downhill. So then it's not just him. Uh, the reason that he, that everyone points that out is 
two reasons. Everyone wants to think that Matthew Vanderpool does everything entirely different from everybody else. That's <laughs> reason number one. Uh, number two, the other reason is the fact that he's extremely tall and has long limbs, so, so it's, it's more visible. Yeah. If you watch Nino Scherter, he does it. If you watch Matthias Flickinger, he does it. If you watch Kate Courtney, she does it. If you watch Yolanda Neff, same thing. Um, so, uh, but the, the point is he's in a high hinge to rest. And then when things get serious, you'll see he can instantly move down into a deep hinge and that's any good descender and watch cyclocross, watch about Van Aert, watch tune watch, you know, and it would go to mountain biking, anything else, watch downhill mountain biking. You'll see the same thing. Mm -hmm. The, the ability to go from a high hinge where you're resting, but you're still hinged because that puts you in a, in a, a capable position, just the same going from that and then going down into a deep hinge where you drop your hips basically, and you get down low and they can do that in a fraction of a second and be able to go down a drop, go through a rock garden, go over a log, go over a jump, and then be back into the other position because their efficiency is so great. Um, so that that's, that's why you see it. And that's why it kind of works out that way. One point that we didn't cover on the cooling off part, mm. this will be the oh, last yeah, thing yeah, we'll cover right. the best ways to cool off, mm -hmm. uh, post-workout. Uh, mm -hmm. what say you, Chad? Uh, you can go to the extreme end of things with a cold shower. Um, I like taking little ice packs and draping them over my wrists and my hands and feet, uh, back mm. of the neck, under the armpits, behind the knees. There are all these axillary regions and just regions where you're getting more uh, blood vessels closer to the skin. Mm -hmm. They help you cool quicker. Um, I've gone to the extent of taking cool towels and uh, basically napping. So I put the cool <laughs> towel over my body and then conk out for 20, 30 minutes, whatever. Yep. Mm -hmm. Um you can also ingest cooler, cooler foods, but I, I, I'd rather cool the skin. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I take a shower and I actually, toward the end of my showers after workouts, I switch it over to being really cold and I'll spend the final bits of my shower. Very, very and, cold. And I say that. the fast, you know, last couple minutes of the shower cold. It's very effective. It, yep. it's, yeah. it's kind of a miserable undertaking. Um, if you ease into it over the course of the shower, yeah, it's a little less it miserable, it easier. but, uh, cold showers work the tremendously other, well. The other thing that I would mention, and this might look super silly, but, uh, we have this for Simon's car seat. You can get things that strap onto car seats that are basically freezer packs and they sit and they basically conform to a car seat. Hmm. Uh, so then you mentioned the fact that you're driving to work and you're all sweaty. Oh, wow. Um, you could have that on the back of your seat and that could give you some cooling power there too. Hmm. Um, Didn't know. and then as any, as any gentleman does, you never drive with your suit coat. So hopefully your suit coat is off. Um, so it's a gentleman. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> okay. Uh, with that, thank you everybody for joining us. If you're watching this on YouTube, something that would really help us give us a thumbs up right now on this video. If you're watching it, that's super helpful. It'll help more people see this, help more people get faster. Cause like that person pointed out with a question, that's our goal help more people get so faster cool. and please check out what we're doing here at trainer road. That is hugely helpful. Trainerroad.com. Uh, we promise we'll make you faster. We'll talk to you all next week. See ya. Bye everybody. Thanks, guys.